in my defense, I was waiting on the CMMC rule uh, to get started on my uh, my 800-171 controls. Case closed. See you later, DOJ. I mean, I think that's a, that's pretty that's pretty uh, solid argument, right? When a former federal prosecutor yeah, laughs like in your face oh, when you tell yeah. them. I didn't get started on my 800-171 controls because I was waiting on the CMMC rule. That's probably not a good sign, folks. No, no, that's not. That is not a good argument. Um... All right, folks, sum it up. Episode 10 for June of 2023. This month, we go over five main things. First, as always, recapping the Cyber AB Town Hall. We learned this month that CMMC is coming to Canada. The number of authorized C3 PAOs has increased dramatically and some takeaways from companies that have successfully gone through their joint surveillance assessments. We also talk about a webinar that NIST hosted earlier this month about their plans for revising NIST SP-800-171, releasing it with NIST SP-800-171A, and we talk about what that might mean as far as how the timelines will play out for the release of those revisions, CMMC rulemaking, and so on. We also talk about a DOD IG report that came out uh, that outlines just how bad the problem of not marking CUI in the DOD supply chain actually is. The findings are eye-opening and startling and probably not a surprise to anybody that has actually been doing business in the DIB. Uh, but we talk about what it might mean as far as the impact to the amount of marked information that contractors could expect to see in the future as a result of the IG's reports. We had two special guests this month. The first, Stephanie Sigmund, uh, former federal prosecutor, uh, very popular CS2 speaker, friend of the show. She joins us to talk about a Supreme Court decision recently on the False Claims Act what that might mean for the DOJ's cyber civil fraud initiative and for defense contractors and um, all federal contractors really moving forward. We also talked to Lauren Ayers, first guest that we've had twice on the podcast now about something known as class deviations. Uh, this is a topic that comes up when people are talking about the new tasks in 800-171 Rev 3 and everyone expects the DOD will be granting an extension to when they need to have those requirements implemented. That's something known as a class deviation in the contracting world. And so everyone's favorite former contract officer joins us to explain what the heck that means and uh, how likely a class deviation extension is uh, in the future for DOD contractors. Uh, as always, we talk about quite a bit of information this month. So let us know what you think in the comments. Be sure to like and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. All right, Jason, it's the end of another month. You know what that means. There was a Cyber AB town hall. I thought that it meant that you didn't know what month that we were in. but That may uh, also be true, but I do know that there was a Cyber AB town hall on Tuesday, and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let's just say that uh, now cybersecurity regulations are coming with a little bit of maple syrup and the uh, 
in this year's or in this month's uh, Cyber AV Town Hall. Sorry, I, I've been been sitting on it all day, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you've been waiting to you've been waiting to make Canada jokes since <laughs> since since the town hall. I have no clue what that's. Oh, what Canada! Right. Okay, all right, all right, we did it. We put our cybersecurity on the. Um, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> Why are we talking about Canada? What the heck? What, Right. So last night, Matt Travis announced that Canada has CMMC. Well, kind of has CMMC or is adopting CMMC. Um, it introduces the CPCC, which is the Canadian Program for Cybersecurity. That, yeah, that is funded. Okay, by listen, this is great. I'm glad that they are, uh, you know, merging on the standard and coming up with a program to evaluate the standard. Verifying that standards are implemented is always a good thing. But can we just pick the same letters? Like that's yeah. that's my own. That's really my only gripe here. That's the next step. That's in CPCC 2.0. Don't even, uh, come on. <laughs> I just say okay. CPCC, Canadian Program for Cybersecurity. Is that right? Yep. Yes. Okay. And, and so it's a program that's funded by their uh, defense ministry um, and will most likely utilize in the state 171. That was the intention that was delivered last night during the town hall. Okay. Um, does, does any of this sound familiar at all to you? Uh, it sounds uh, incredibly familiar. It sounds oh, exactly yeah. It sounds like a mirror uh, image of the process that we've been doing. Let's talk about a couple of the things that are kind of uh, attached to it, or a couple of the uh, the key takeaways from that announcement. Um, so, like it was from Canada's perspective, it was just announced last month, May twenty twenty three. May we're in June, Jacob. That's right. Uh, um, and it's um, going to be mandated by way of contract by the winter of 2024. And Matt Travis snuck in a little dad joke last night and said that the people up north say that their winters are a little longer. So I think that that's extending the timeline. Um, one thing that's not characteristic, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, or anybody, any of the listeners may correct me if I'm wrong, but this program's funded by $25 million of federal funding um, to stand up the program. So they're being giving a grant to stand up the program. I don't think that that's characteristic of the nope, the CMMC nope. program. Right? We're, uh, nope, well, that that would definitely be a, a a big a big difference in terms of how the DoD stood up this version of the program. I think you know funding is always a hot button topic, so it sounds like they have some amount of money going into standing theirs up. I think that the real um, <clears throat> the real important part to me is that they they have said that they are going to uh, align on the same standard. And then have these two programs evaluate that standard, which uh, zooming out, I would imagine that we're going to get um, extremely similar announcements for the UK, for Australia, uh, especially. Uh, I would say that we will almost certainly hear a very similar announcement uh, for both of those as well. Uh, this is another example of the fact that there is a lot of stuff that happens uh, that never that isn't that isn't public, right? There's a lot of stuff that has to happen over weeks and months of coordination for the CMMC program to get up and running. Uh, just because we haven't heard about the rule being published as final doesn't mean that nothing's happening, right? This is a very good example of that. I agree. Um, this program, though, the CPCC, is um, a joint effort that is established between multiple government agencies in Canada, the Ministry of Defense, as we mentioned, the Ministry of Procurement and Services. So maybe like that's like uh, OUSD ANS um, and the Standards Council of Canada. 
I'm not 100% certain what that is, and I could Yeah, I don't my... know the uh, the order of battle of my Canadian uh, bureaucracies, but I'm sure that as more information comes out, we can probably uh, get that information diagrammed for everybody. The nice part, the nice part is that they, like I said, again, they said that they are going to orient around the same standards. So it doesn't really matter sure. if the uh, cogs in the government wheels of the various uh, countries are different. If the standard is all the same, same reference layer, same assessment language, same everything. Already discussing intent for reciprocity is definitely a huge step in the right direction. But let's yeah. talk about the CMMC, CPCC, Foreign Exchange Student Program. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Why are you laughing? It's the truth. Okay. So, and just to clarify, we are, that is, that is not actually uh, a bullet uh, on the official announcement. Of course. But what the actual bullet is, is that Canadian citizens and companies can train and certify in almost all active ecosystem roles, except for the instructor program wasn't listed and the certified uh, CMMC third-party assessment organizations aren't listed. So right now, Canadian organizations are prohibited from BNC3 PAOs and Canadian um, organizations are, or Canadian personnel are prevented from entering the ecosystem um, for the instructor's roles. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's because the CCI doesn't exist and the PI is kind of going away. Maybe, um, yeah. Or, yeah, or if it's a case of like there's certain um, things that are holding, you know, holding it back from making those people eligible. And, and yeah. we'll obviously see that, but, um, <clears throat> they can enroll in the C, uh, the RP, the RPA, they can become RPO, which is uh registered practice. And a lot of them have, a lot of them have, like Matt said, um, you know, there's a lot of Canadian organizations that have gone through the training, participate in the ecosystem and everything. This mm -hmm. is uh, one of those things that shouldn't be a surprise to people that Canada is participating in the ecosystem, just like, Heard it here first, I guess. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that the UK and Australia are also going to probably have programs that look very, very similar to um, what this program is set up, how it's described, how it'll play out. You know, whether they're going to relax and say you can do this role, you can't do that role, and those sorts of details, I don't know. Um, but they're orienting around the same standards, and they're coming up with programs to verify that those standards are implemented. And that is really... Uh, you know, the big, big takeaway, because that's the way everything is going. And then the last point of emphasis, Jacob, uh, surrounding the CPCC um, has to deal with the fact that there are no limitations for American based um, companies and ecosystem um, participants, um, credentialed ecosystem participants to work with Canadian companies. So gotcha. obviously, you can work with a Canadian company and you can do consulting, you can do assessing, whatever it may be. Um, I don't know exactly how it works out because obviously they didn't get into that detail, but we know it's a possibility and we know that it's not something that's a uh, forbidden door that, that we need to have opened, right? Gotcha. Well, speaking of the ecosystem, uh, it's getting bigger rapidly. Yeah. Uh, so we got another announcement this month uh, about the growth of the authorized C3PAO pool um, in the ecosystem. We jumped from 38 last month to 44. So six new authorized C3PAOs. Listen, not a shabby number, right? It, it, it's, it's definitely um, a lot more. And I went back and I was dabbling around. And so we are almost at the one-year anniversary of the cap being released last okay. year. Last summer, we remember we were in D.C., second week of July. Oh, yeah. You know, getting ready, yeah. Um, so we, we are pretty much, you know, like at that point for the one year. And at that time, how many C-3PAOs do you think there were? Oh, man. This time last year, CS2 D.C. cap released. How many C-3PO's did we have? Yeah. I'm going to say... 
can I give you a range or do I have to pick a number? Yeah, do do a range. That, that I'm going to say that we had somewhere <clears throat> between 15 and 20. Good call. 16. 16. Yep. Wait, so we went from 16 to 44 in a year? Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Now, it's also when, 44 more than we had when we started CMMC as a initiative to begin with. So like we say every time, every month, there's more C3PAOs, which means there's an incremental increase in the assessment capacity of the ecosystem. And we say it every time, there won't be enough assessment. There will never be enough assessment capacity, uh, you know, almost by definition. But every month that goes by, there's more and more and more. And that erodes this uh, sort of eternal argument that, well, there's not enough assessment capacity. Not enough not assessment capacity is not going to be a sufficient reason for CMMC to not happen, especially because the longer CMMC takes, the bigger the assessment capacity gets. Yeah, and we just talked last month about how many are waiting in the queue. It's hundreds of organizations yeah. waiting to become C3PAs. So I, I think that you know, at, at this point, we can say that the growth is steady enough is it fast enough? No, but it's at least it's steady and constantly improving. I mean, if they if they add another, you know, if they add, if they continue to grow at that rate, I mean, you don't want to extrapolate, you know, you know, in a straight line like that necessarily, but I mean, theoretically, you know, if we go another year, right? What's the ecosystem look like from there and then, you know, as the ecosystem continues to grow, I mean, you're going to hit 75, 100, mm-hmm. you you know, is that enough capacity? It, you know, is, is 44 assessment organizations is quite a bit. It's quite a bit. Yeah. And I mean, it was 20 with a growth of 28 in one year. Um, and that's, so yeah. if you think if we keep up the trend now, we, we did six in a month. Like, I think that that yeah. number is going to grow substantially by the time we're having this discussion next year. Yeah. And then, so I, mean, I think it would be, uh, I think it would be a different story if we saw that number flatline or somehow decrease. Um, but that's not, that's not the trend that we're seeing. So it's always interesting to hear those updates. And then on top of that update, there's another update for the CMMC Ecosystem Summit Round 2, um, which is coming back to the Tyson's Corner Ritz-Carlton on November the 8th. Um, it was a fun conference last year. I had a good time. It was. Um, I, I think that the one thing that I particularly am more excited about for that conference um, is the fact that now there's a call to speakers and it's not automatically yep. assigned speakers or speaker arranged uh, speakers or excuse yeah, me, sponsor sure. arranged speakers. So um, that's a good question. Yeah, we'll and have then, that. We'll have that link for call for speakers in the notes along with the link to the AB town hall, like always. And then three quarters of the town hall for this month was occupied by something I was particularly interested in, which was tales from the trenches for joint surveillance voluntary assessment and organizations that took place in it. And what we had was representatives from three organizations that have successfully gone through it. Um, one you may have heard of Microsoft. Um, and then a couple more you may have heard of in the news, um, Aeroglin. Uh, international and train technologies. Mm-hmm. And so they had sent each sent a, a representative person, essentially the person responsible for um, the compliance program leading up to the assessment um, was represented on the the town hall. And they gave a, a few insights. And I have a few takeaways that I wanted to talk about and just wanted to see what your reaction was. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, all three companies um, said that they had dedicated staff uh, for the preparation and the assessment. They went through, they assigned roles and responsibilities throughout it and held people accountable. Sounds like a recipe for success. I would it, say. You know, it's funny as we go through these points too, it reminds me a lot. I remember at CS2 Austin back in the day, uh, we uh, had folks from companies that had just achieved their C3PAO status mm-hmm. uh, and had gone through assessment from DIBCAC. Uh, and so 
um, th this reminds me a lot of what they said, where we had to have people dedicated to what was going on. We had to, so I, lots and lots of patterns where if you're going through an assessment to become a C3PAO, if you're going through an assessment to get your joint surveillance, if you're going eventually through your assessment to get CMMC, your Canadian CMMC, your Australian CMMC, your, your UK CMMC, same fundamental sort of precursors here seem to be um, uh, what pop up every time. Um, yeah, I, I can agree that that is definitely um, one of the keys to success that we've seen most frequently is that the fact that people were dedicated, there was meetings that happened in regular cadence. It wasn't just like a, when we get around to it or in passing, mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that CMMC thing. Right? Or do it in a hurry. Yeah. A hundred percent. And then something that I know that both of us have uh, spoken to exhaustion um, about is that uh, using a framework as the North Star that you know is going to stay, is going to stay. We've already talked about NIST 800-171 multiple times being a foundational uh, or foundational changes to the NIST 800-171 framework, not being, you know, something that's a, a real possibility, right? It's, it's going to yeah, be yeah. foundationally the same. DOD has said it. We have repeated it, right? CMMC rulemaking has to do with the programmatic details of how the CMMC program will run. The CMMC program assesses NIST 800-171 requirements for the most part. There's also 172 or a subset at CMMC level one. The center of gravity are the NIST requirements. And so associating pending finalization of the CMMC program details is not the same as what's going on with the NIST requirements. So just like they were saying in the town hall, orient to the NIST requirements and you'll be fine because that's what the program is assessing. Yeah, all three of these organizations stated that they used uh, NIST 800-171 as their North Star and guiding mm -hmm. their cybersecurity program implementation. Um, and then Aeroglyn obviously um, called out as well, the CMMC level two assessment guide using that from the early stages. And obviously there's not a huge difference, um, but yeah. however, um, you know, having, knowing what materials to reference obviously is a, a recipe for success as well. Um, I'm a fan, I mean, I'm a fan of the CMMC assessment guide. We always talk about 171 and 171A. I'm a fan of the CMMC assessment guide because it's both of them in the same document. And I've been asking NISC for years to make 171 and 171A a single document. So you're not having to constantly flip back and forth between the two. The CMMC assessment guide effectively did that. They put the two of them together. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more efficient. And then all three of the organizations at some point in time during their journey engaged with some professional member of the ecosystem, whether it be a C3PAO from the early onset to know what to expect to work out that relationship. Um, whether it be consulting um, from maybe a registered provider, a CCP or something like that. Um, but all three of them realized that they needed help with something or there was something they didn't understand, or there was a measure that required ecosystem support that they went out and, and, and they saw yeah. it and they, and they got. And that's Yeah, it gets back to that point of it, you're not going to do it in a hurry. It's just, it's not going to be something you can turn around and do. Despite the marketing claims of many solution providers in the ecosystem, it's just not something that happens in two weeks. And then Matt Travis had asked all three of them how they handled their POAM situation. And one mm -hmm. of the responses was POAMs. What's POAMs? Never heard of them, right? Microsoft comes out and says, we just get 110s. Yeah, um, yeah. I loved that. They were like, we don't, <laughs> we don't worry about POAMs. Although the other two did say that, you know, they had, they had some items on the POAM and it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, the the one that really stood out to me is we've talked about on, on multiple episodes, the, the DIPCAC uh, top 10 other than satisfied, right? And FIPS validated encryption being what? Number one. 
Oh yeah. Um, and, oh yeah. And even in this case, you see Aragorn, who has successfully transcended this, uh, had you know got bit by the OTS bug, and it FIPS validated encryption um, caused some problems for their assessment. You yeah. know, obviously they didn't obviously full out fail the control as he mentioned on um, the town hall. Um, it was just some things to deal with certificates and justifying it. And, yeah. And now like I would that. I would recommend um, compliant you know, the, and certified. That's what the the, the, the yeah. delineation was. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend to everybody. I mean, the town halls are always um, informative, but this one was probably one of the most information dense that we've had in a long time. I've seen a lot of people uh, who uh, commented after watching it say that they found it very valuable. So if you're going to watch a town hall and you haven't watched one in a while, uh, I I would say that this one's probably worth your time. Well, Jacob, we talked about the Siemens, uh, the Cyber AB uh, Town Hall for the month of June, but June also had another informative webinar or town hall type meeting um, that we had particular interest in. That's been the talk of the town, um, and that is the NIST webinar covering the NIST 800-171 Revision Three uh, public initial public draft. Yep. Um, we we had Dr. also Ron worth Ross. also worth people's time. The AB Town Hall this month is worth your time. The NIST webinar is worth your time. How about that informative, informative what do you know? videos yeah. and series coming out <laughs> to help people guide? Who would have thunk it? Um, so Dr. Ron Ross and Vicki Pilateri, who we, I guess we big could say fans. Dr. Ron Ross is, yeah, big fans, big fans, friends of the show, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ron and Vicki provided in-depth context into the evolution of NIST 800-171 as a standard. Um, and uh, basically the evolution of it into an 853-centric CUI yeah. overlay. We are going I, straight from... Charmander to Charizard here. I mean, it is. Contain your it excitement, is a, buddy. Contain it your is a major. It is a major. Uh, it is a major evolution. This is full, full Bulbasaur to what? Wait, what did Bulbasaur turn into? Venusaur, right? Oh man, uh, yeah. let us know in the comments. So. We're losing nerd points rapidly here. Uh, yeah, I hope you say so. Producer Dustin, feel free to let us know in the chat. Anyways, eight hundred one seventy one um, is evolving into a bigger, more powerful form, uh, yeah. closer to eight hundred fifty three. And the intended plan is, is for the practices that will in the contents of that uh, framework to be steadily transitioned into uh, until it rese resembles the entire framework resembles NIST 853 uh, in structure and composition. And I want to yeah. ask you, Jacob, why is this good? Well, um, it, for, well, that assumes that you think that it's good. And I think that depends on your perspective. I think that formatting 800-171 in the context of 853 is better for a bunch of reasons. The first is the original design of 800-171 from its release in 2015 up until now with revision two, the current revision, uh, has been to take 853 controls that were determined to be relevant to protecting CUI and abstract them into single sentence requirements. So sometimes you would take 853 controls with multiple line items sometimes many, many line items, and then abstract it into a single sentence. And so when you open 800-171 Rev 2 or before, and you only have 110 single sentences, you are uh, completely out of touch with what they actually represent, how much stuff is actually abstracted from you by that formatting decision. And the only way that you would know that there is something else under the hood that you need to do is if you happen to stumble across 800-171 alpha. And most people typically do not just organically discover 
800-171-A and understand its relationship to 800-171. So by formatting 800-171-REV3 directly from 853 language, you remove this abstraction effect that keeps you from being able to see what the control is actually asking for. It makes it much easier to see what is involved with implementing a control. It makes it much easier to see the relationship to the verification procedures in 800-171A. It makes it much easier to cross-reference back to 853 if you're trying to go backwards and get uh, extra information about what the control is asking you for. It just makes the whole process a lot more straightforward. The trade-off is it's more information. It's more stuff, right? So having ODPs, organizationally defined parameters, formatted inside of the control text itself is very good because it is a very clear variable that needs to be defined in order for that control to be implemented and verified. Mm -hmm. Problem is now you got a bunch of these goofy looking assignment statement things in brackets just scattered all through the document. And so if you're just flipping through it very quickly, you're like, this is a huge mess. If you step through it line by line, you're like, it, it's really not that bad. It makes a bunch of sense. So I think that the move to 853 is good from a usability perspective, period. If for no other reason, the amount of cross-referencing that you have to do to go see what the single sentence abstraction is asking you for is cut down dramatically, right? Because yeah. it's just written right there. See, that was my same argument for why it's more beneficial or why it's better from the practitioner standpoint is because as a practitioner, when you were going back and checking, you know, cross-references um, to practices from 853, sometimes you would go back four and five times just to check and see what different elements- Tons of cross-referencing, yeah. And like fundamentally, the... yeah, I mean, fundamentally too, just, you know, on that on that note, mm -hmm. the, the move from a full 853 control down to an abstracted single sentence requirement was done based off the assumption that companies had full-blown well-resourced information security programs already. Yep. Typically, we hear arguments and lots of evidence from the DIB that that is not the default case. Companies don't have the resources. They don't have uh, these information security programs. And so as a result, because of that, we should undo the abstraction that was done based off the assumption that you had all those resources. If you don't have the resources up and running so that you just need a one sentence outcome. You need to know what the control is asking you for. You necessarily have to bring in that detail from 853 to know what it's asking you for. So I think that, I think that the trade-offs are worth it to go back to 853 formatting, even though I'll be the first to admit it is more stuff to have to read and wade through. Yeah, but it makes it makes things make better sense. It's a it's a paradox. You have to add more stuff in order to make it make sense. It, it, you would think that the more stuff you take away, the the clearer it would become, and that's just not that's just not how it's worked out. And then one final point and question that I have from the NIST webinar um, this month um, that I want to kind of present to you as you talked and you were like, man, I think that at this you know webinar, I think that they're going to release eight hundred one seventy one a. They're going to give it to us. Then they're going to be like, you can download it now. That was my hope. Yeah. Yeah, dude, wishful thinking. Um, but they did announce a new commitment that um, I think is huge, and I want to hear why you think it's huge. But the commitment is to simultaneously release the A, so the 171A yeah. with the 171 framework, or 53A with new 53, 853 revisions. Um, and so from now on, moving forward, they've kind of um, loosely committed, you know, verbally committed to 
um, keeping it in the same cadence where we are dropping not only the draft of 853 revision six or whatever it may be next, but we're also going to draft 853 a um, that, that coincides with it. So that there's no gap in between. And I want to yeah. know why you think that's so good. Well, it's, this is, this is by far the biggest takeaway, biggest deal to me is they didn't release 171A at the webinar, but they did announce that, like you said, they're going to release them simultaneously. So mm -hmm. typically what NIST has done historically is they will release 171 and then release 171A once 171 is done. They'll release right. 53, and once it's final, then they'll release 53A. And that is incredibly annoying and difficult to work with because I can't verify that the controls are implemented unless I have the verification procedures that correspond to them. So if you release the requirements and then I don't get the verification procedures for a year, what do you want me to do, right? Just release them at the same time. And that's what they're going to do. So when the... What, what question are we asking right now? We got the, uh, the initial public draft of Rev3 right yeah. now. And we're trying to figure out, I wonder how many assessment objectives. Everybody there wants are. to know. The, the first, yeah, we have. I I would like to say, you know, I would like to think that in our small contribution to the larger understanding of NIST and CMMC in the ecosystem, that we have helped raise awareness around the importance and centrality of 800-171A as the center of gravity for understanding what's going on. Those are the questions you're going to be asked. Those are the questions you need to ask yourself. Those are the questions that your MSP should be able to answer. It all goes back to those questions. So if we don't have 171A, we don't know what questions to ask. We can't even answer simple questions like, how much bigger is 171 Rev 3 than 171 R2? Because it's very difficult to compare an abstraction to 53. So it's very difficult to compare 171 R2 to 171 R3. NIST has heard our, 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 our prayers, and they have said that they are going to release 171 and 171A Rev3 together. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal because that makes your ability to implement the Delta much easier. But from a rulemaking timeline, CMMC timeline perspective, this is also a big deal because if we got 171 published, in Q1 of 2024, which NIST has said is the latest that they plan to publish it, and then we didn't get 171A to go with it for six, nine, 12 months, then you wouldn't have the two halves of the equation for an extra year, right? And then CMMC after that would need to be fully updated because the CMMC assessment guide needs to be updated and the cap and all this other stuff. By them saying that they are releasing 171 and 171A together, you have now chopped off that year of time that everyone was expecting would be in front of the time it would take to update CMMC. So releasing them both at the same time is both what everyone wants them to do because that's what we need to understand, but it also dramatically shortens the amount of time that it will take DOD to update CMMC. And so, you know, talk about a trade-off, right? You want to yep. know what... Uh, you're going to be implemented uh, or what you're going to be assessed against and what you need to implement with 171A. But by them getting out of the waterfall model and then doing it concurrently, DOD also gets to go faster. So, you know, something to keep in mind. 
On that point, do you think that DOD is privy to the information that's being released in those before that document's dropped, or is it oh, responding uh, at the same time as us? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I mean, I like to think that uh, DOD has, like, uh, some nondescript underground bunker in a desert somewhere with a bunch of uh, people who just nerd out on missed controls and missed standards all day. If you do, call me. But, yeah, um, dude, I was about to yeah, say, is this your fantasy? You know, yeah, you I was, I'm, <laughs> hey, I don't know. Um, but... <laughs> but um, but, you know, I like to think that they do because you can, re- you can, you know, I'm going to, okay, let me call this. You can somewhat easily, if you really wanted to reverse engineer all of this stuff, because it's Agreed. just derived from 53 and 53A. If you spend enough time connecting the dots, you can see which way NIST is going, which is why we're always banging the drum and stomping the ground saying, this is what NIST is going to do. We're not predicting the future. We're just reading 853. And right. then looking at the way that 171 is going to change to meet it, right? So, uh, yeah, I think everybody should watch that NIST webinar. It's definitely worth their time. NIST is not playing around. They want to go faster. They feel like the programs that assess 171 and the implementation rates of 800-171 are not going fast enough. And their way of helping to uh, move the needle is to update the standard and update the standard the standards quickly. So. This is not rulemaking. This is not uh, legislation. This is not a heavy-duty bureaucracy. NIST is very good at meeting their timelines and their estimates. And when they say they think that they're going to have 171 and 171A published by Q1 of 2024 at the latest, I 100% believe them. Yeah, I, I, I believe them as well. Let's... Um... Let's go ahead and talk about something else that moves needles, and those are DOD Inspector General reports. Oh boy! So, do you want to talk about them, or should we just pass this over? We could talk about the Nerd Cave, talk reading this documents if you want. You know, like we can go Man, in there. That just... is this one. This one. Well, I had to leave my Nerd Cave of NIST documents uh, and go out for a walk after I read this DOD IG report. I was, I got to be happened. honest. I was pretty pissed. I was pretty pissed when I read it. And I think that everybody who reads it and everybody should read it uh, will also also be understandably upset Mm -hmm. because the way that it breaks down is that the CMMC program is just one cog in a larger wheel of programs that overlap with each other in order to try to make this whole thing go, right? The CMMC program is a DOD assessment program for a NIST standard that is one of three parts uh, of a federal-wide CUI program, right? So you have sure. the federal-wide CUI program. You've got the agency CUI programs. Within one agency, DOD, you have the CMMC program. That sure. program rolls back up to the federal CUI program because it's evaluating the minimum federal standard, 800-171. Now, obviously, what ends up happening is CMMC starts to take They're catching strays because CUI isn't marked, but that's not the job of the CMMC program. The CMMC program's job is to evaluate whether the controls are implemented. CUI marking, whether we like it or not, within the way the bureaucracy breaks down, doesn't belong to the CMMC program. The the pointing Spider-Man meme is a meme for a reason in the federal space, right? So we've heard... Uh, you know, again and again and again, you don't have to go very far. You don't have to be working, you know, in the dib for long before you realize that there's a lot of information out there that isn't being marked. There's a lot of stuff that is ostensibly CUI that's not being marked at all. There's a lot of stuff where 
people feel like they're dealing with CUI and then they ask their customer, which is what they get told to do. And the customer has no idea whether they have CUI or not. And it's really making people mad because they want to do the right thing and they want to implement the controls. And depending on what day of the week and which political appointee is running the CMC program, they can be very aggressive in threatening your ability to continue to do business with the DOD if you don't protect the information. And when it's not marked, you're making their job more difficult. Right. So the DODIG spent from October of 2022 until May, very recently of 2023, and they went to 10 different DOD components and evaluated them for their processes and training on marking CUI in documents and data and in emails to their contractors. And the findings were horrifically bad. They were... So before you jump into that, explain to me what a DOD component is. Okay, a DOD component is something like... Uh, 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 um, like a Marine Corps command, right? An acquisition okay, okay. command. Uh, okay. MDA, Missile Defense Agency, would be a component, right? So this so could like be... A, so like a subo of, uh, of the DOD, right? Like a Yeah, yeah, exactly. And okay. we're going to have Lauren Ayers on uh, later on, and we can ask her, you know, uh, maybe what the... De I don't know what the definition is off the top of my head. They explain it, and they list them in the IG report. Everyone should go read it. Everyone should go read it. you said the findings were bad? The findings were horrific. They were... Dude... If you had to go outside and walk and cut, I'm going to try, I actually waited, right? And I had this on my LinkedIn post where I read the report and uh -huh. for, I rarely do this because I, I am usually very proud of my ability to remain professional, even when I'm reading things that I get uh, probably unnecessarily worked up about. Right. Uh, this one I actually had to like set down and not talk about over the weekend because wow. I was, I was going to, I was going to freak out. Right. Wait, so, a full weekend decompress? Yeah. So so they went oh. to 10 DOD components, which is a lot. That's a, that's a yeah. big cross-section of the DOD. And they said, we want you to show us who, how much training you've given everybody and whether you mm -hmm. have. Turned out most of them got no training whatsoever, and they didn't mm -hmm. worry about the training at all. And then they said, show us um, in the data that you have, in the documents you have, and in the emails that you send that you're marking the CUI because we know the IG says, here are examples of objective CUI. We know that this data is CUI. Um, show us what you did with it. And when they went to all of those DOD components, they found that DOD personnel did not consistently apply the required markings as required by DOD guidance in documents and emails. And the findings of the reports show that the DOD contractors were better at marking CUI and sometimes the DOD contractors themselves that they evaluated scored like 90% better than the DOD components. So when they went and looked at these 10 DOD components, they said the personnel at nine of the 10 components did not consistently mark documents that included CUI. 46% didn't put headers and footers on these documents. 48% didn't put any designation markers on them at all. 9% didn't include portion markings, even though they were marked. They, they didn't mark it. They didn't mark the data, right? In, okay. If 90% of the components did, you know, that got looked at, only 50% of the time maybe put a marking on something in terms of their documents, it didn't happen. It got worse when they were uh, marking emails where 87% of the emails had no headers and footers and 42% okay. of them had no designation indicator whatsoever, right? I mean, it was... Okay. It, 
it, everybody who works in the DIB knows that the DUD is not marking the CUI. And this is a problem because we know that the CUI is still flowing into the DIB. And that makes things like scoping very difficult. That makes things like getting leadership buy-in very difficult. It makes things like even knowing if this is relevant to you very difficult, right. especially when you do the right thing and you go ask your customer, do I have CUI? And it turns out that your customer probably didn't get the training. And when the DOD IG asked why, why is it not being marked? They gave a bunch of reasons. Excuses. There has to yeah, be well, so, you know, yes, when you read the report, please, everyone read the report. The reasons given are excuses, right? Uh, it, they are excuses because the one that jumped out to me that was really the one that sent me over the edge. If the DOD, if nine out of 10 DOD components just straight up didn't mark the CUI and the DIB is out there struggling to be able to keep up with what's going on, I mean, Mm -hmm. It's a struggle for probably most of the div that's trying to deal. Anybody listening to this, it's it's hard work. Agreed. And one of the reasons that they gave for not marking the data was they forgot. Oh, valid. They forgot, right? Valid. Well, guess yeah, what? Valid. If you're a div contractor, you don't get to forget, right? You don't get to tell your CMMC assessment. What happens you if you forget? Yeah, there's no forgot on the POAM. Like, that's not yeah. how this works, right? Anyways. That's CMMC my, thing. Just forget. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, my over, that's a CMMC thing, yeah. Anyways, my overall thing is this. Um, we all knew that the data wasn't being marked. And the DOD IG report puts it in black and white in numbers that reveals a systemic problem. It is true. The DOD is not marking the data. Here's the problem is I feel like what will happen is what typically happens with these DOD IG reports is that there will be an overcorrection and that as a result, DOD got smacked for not marking data. They didn't get smacked for overmarking data. And so as a result, the behavior of the system will respond in such a way that they now are going to overmark the data because the main reason why they said that it wasn't getting marked was even when they knew that there was CUI, the automated tools that they have, like you might have for a classify tool in a classified space, Sure. don't have the CUI option available for them to do the marking. And that means that if they had the option in their technology, DOD CIO, hello, if they had the option in their technology to market CUI, they otherwise would have marked it as CUI. So that is a very tech, that is a very simple technological fix, although it is very embarrassing. And that makes me think that six, nine months down the road here, if not sooner, all those people are going to mark, 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 mark with their tool that now has the option available. And we're going to go from very little marking to a tidal wave of marking of CUI. And that will be us. We're out of the frying pan and into the fire now, where if you thought it was hard when you had no CUI, now everything you get from the government is going to be CUI. So it's worth reading the report. It is very cathartic to read the report. It's always good to see the IG find out and prove things that everybody knows are going on uh, in the contracting space. But I feel like it's going to result in tons of marked CUI rather than accurately marked CUI. And that's not something that the IG report is able to prevent. But Apologies for the rant. It's worth reading. We are joined by 
the great and powerful Stephanie Sigmund, friend of the show, friend of CS2, friend of uh, NDIA, where we originally met, uh, what, two years ago now? Uh, Almost and, two years, yes. Yeah. And so I uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We know you're extremely busy. Uh, in the news recently, uh, the Supreme Court uh, had heard a case on the False Claims Act, and I couldn't think of anyone better to help understand uh, what that means and what it potentially means downstream into the world of federal contractors and or defense contractors. Um, my very sort of initial, you know, low level understanding is that it was a unanimous decision, which apparently, uh, from my understanding is somewhat rare. So, uh, maybe help us, um, understand what, what's going on. We haven't heard about the false claims act in a while. Sure. Well, why, why don't I start with just a little background of the false yeah. claim act, and then I'll talk about the decision. And yes, it is unanimous. Um, it, it, there have been, there's probably a handful of decisions every year that the Supreme Court does issue unanimous decisions uh, concerning. Um, so while rare, uh, it's not unprecedented, I would say. Um, but let's, let's just take a step back. So the False Claims Act is, uh, and for people that don't know me, I was a uh, prosecutor for 22 years. I spent my majority of my career um, defending national security. Uh, and so basically protecting our national security uh, and being serving as a national security prosecutor. Uh, and why I think the False Claims Act has come, become really important, especially in the cyber arena, is the DOJ announced that they were going to use what they refer to as the False Claims Act um, for this civil cyber fraud initiative that was announced in October of 2001. Now, the, the False Claims Act has been around a long time. It, 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 it dates back to the 1860s, uh, and it was enacted in response to fraud against the Union Army. Uh, and it is the primary civil enforcement tool that DOJ, Department of Justice, uses. Uh, it's extremely broad and it imposes liability on anyone who knowingly presents or causes to be presented a false or fraudulent claim for payment. Uh, and I'm gonna like just take a step back because that's the legalese, right? Uh, and I, I try as a lawyer to, to, to speak in common language so everybody understands what that means. What that means is someone, uh, a contractor, you know, submits a claim for payment. You know, they, they, they submit their bill to the U.S. government for payment, and it is false. Yeah, the, the work wasn't done, you know, as often is the case here. Um, the, the payment, it, it, was, over, it was an overbilling, um, or in the, in the space of the cyber world now, that they, they're representing that work was done um, pursuant to the material terms of the contract, and they failed to, to take the necessary cybersecurity steps. They didn't follow what we know as Section 7, uh, 7012, the DFARS. Uh, and, and that is that they didn't comply with the NIST 800-171 requirements. Now, why the False Claims Act is such a huge tool to the government is it, it, it allows for the government to recover three times its losses, the damages. So that would be for every claim that was false, they could recover that amount. And the government has successfully used that tool. And I've looked at the stats before coming on today 
and it's over $70 billion that the that DOJ has collected uh, under the False Claims Act uh, in settlements and judgments. Yeah, that's typically in uh, the healthcare sector, right? And they've, you know, they've, they've started to emphasize it in the cybersecurity compliance world, but that it, a lot of this has been done in, 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 with regards to healthcare issues, right? Exactly. It has been used very often in the healthcare uh, area. So um, with regards to the False Claims Act, uh, there's no requirement to prove specific intent to defraud. Um, the government, need, they all, all they need to do is prove knowledge that the, the claim was false. And that can be proven by showing that the person had actual knowledge that a claim was false when it was submitted, uh, was deliberately ignorant of the truth or falsity of the claim, or recklessly disregard the truth or falsity of the claim. Uh, so that that's the basic background uh, about the False Claims Act. The only other uh, unique aspect of it, uh, I know Jacob, we've talked about this before, uh, in and which is uh, pretty significant, is that it contains a whistleblower provision, mm -hmm. uh, and which creates a huge, I think, financial incentive for company insiders and whistleblowers to uncover and report fraud. And because that whistleblower, if there is a recovery, uh, will actually is entitled to receive a significant amount of the funds recovered, 15 to 30%, which is a, a very, it can be millions of dollars wow. uh, in the cyber arena. And as you know, from the Aerojet case, uh, that the individual, the whistleblower in that case got millions of dollars. Uh, and so that's a huge recovery. Right. And the Aerojet Rocketdyne case specifically was a situation where, um, you know, according to the information, uh, they, the company was sort of pressuring their cybersecurity person to attest that the controls in 800-171 were implemented. They said, I'm not going to do that because it's not true. Uh, then uh, things happened and they were let go. And then they, I believe, uh, went after the company for wrongful termination. And then in the process of finding out the information around wrongful termination, the false claims issue came up and it became the Aerojet Rocketdyne case. And then I think either you know leading up to that or shortly after we heard about the cyber civil fraud initiative. And so that sort of leads me to uh, sort of two questions is one, um, you and I have talked, you know, offline before we heard about the cyber civil fraud initiative and then we haven't heard anything since. And it reminds me a lot of rulemaking where you'll hear about it and then nothing seems to happen in terms of what the government says publicly. But that's because my understanding is things are happening behind the scenes. It takes a while for yeah. these cases to work through the process. So my first question is, is that true? Is that what you have, you know, seen? Is that what we could, in, you know, is that reasonable to assume that uh, things are happening on the cyber front under that initiative? And second is, um, what was the Supreme Court case about? This sounds like it's relatively straightforward. It sounds like they have the initiative and they have an Aerojet case and they've got a bunch of precedent from healthcare. Uh, what, what was the, what was the, what's up with the case? So let me take a step back and, and, yeah. and answer your first question. There's a lot to unpack for sure. <laughs> exactly. I'm happy to do it. But um, so the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative was announced in October 2001. I'm sorry, not, not 2021. I actually backed up 20 years. Sorry about that. Uh, 2021. And, uh, and that was after 
there was a lot of movement, you know, the Biden administration came out with an executive order to ask all of the federal agencies to look at cybersecurity. And that was because of the number of cyber attacks that had occurred. Colonial Pipeline uh, was one of the, the largest, you know, but you had solar winds, you had all these, uh, these cyber attacks and the administration felt hampered uh, to respond because they simply didn't have the information. And they were, it, so the, it, what they were looking for is how can we encourage uh, the private sector to partner with us to share information so that we can respond um, to a cyber attack? And then that's, that was the primary purpose uh, of the executive order. So DOJ looked uh, at, you know, and, and tried to figure out, well, how, what can we do to assist in that? And what, what the answer was is that uh, uh, Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, announced in October of 2021 that we're going to have this new civil cyber fraud initiative. Uh, and the purpose was, you know, basically what, what her words were, and I very vividly remember, it was like, for too long, people have remained silent, companies, they, they've chosen to um, keep quiet, essentially, and that paraphrasing, instead of reporting cyber attacks. So, and so the purpose, what they were, they were looking to do through this initiative is to, um, they can't, they couldn't mandate reporting of all private companies yet. I mean, we now have a new law that will require this, the critical infrastructure sector to do that. But the rules are still, we talked rule making, rule making takes a long time. We don't have those rules. Um, but if you're a government contractor and you don't report, which within 72 hours uh, as required under the 800-171 and the DFRs, then you're going to have a problem. I mean, that's basically, and if you misrepresent your cybersecurity practices and procedures or your your um, products that you deliver to the government are do not are, do not meet cybersecurity standards, they're deficient in some way, then that also could be the basis of a false claim. So then Aerojet um, was rocket uh, Aerojet was already in the process. The case had already been filed in, in okay. 2015. Uh, uh, it was actually under under seal at that point. It's unsealed in 2018. I'm doing this all by memory. So sure, no, this is great. <laughs> uh, and so and then the because I don't have those notes in front of me. But essentially, what happened is in 2018 that the government was given the opportunity to intervene, to join the action. They mm -hmm. did not. DOJ chose not to. Um, but after the civil cyber fraud initiative was announced, they then uh, basically, <laughs> yes, there was there was uh, litigation going on. Uh, the defendant was trying to dismiss the case, tried to get rid of it through motions dismissed and a motion for summary judgment. And at that juncture, the government entered basically uh, filed a statement of interest mm. and and explained to what? the court. What an uh, understated way of the DOJ to get involved. Like, we're interested in this. We're interested. <laughs> and by the way, let, let us tell you how important cybersecurity is. And because one of the arguments that the defendant was making is that we just promised to give functional rockets. Mm. We weren't promising to give you cybersecurity. Right. Uh, and, and so, and in that, they explained, no, in fact, one of the materiality provisions was that you store the government's data that we're giving you to produce you know, basically technical specifications for missiles, that you're storing that on a secure network that means meets cybersecurity standards. 
Very, and, yeah, very common argument where you talk to small contractors and they go, I'm in the, I'm in the business of making parts. I'm in the business of machining parts or coding or painting or annealing or some special process down the supply chain. I'm not in the business of cybersecurity. I'm not in the business of data governance. And uh, that doesn't seem like that argument flew in the Aerojet case. No, it, uh, they were uh, right after they had paneled the jury and within 24 hours of making their art opening argument, opening statements, it's, it's basically an argument, but it's opening statement. Um, they settled the case. Um, whoa, there was just whoa. too much risk. <laughs> there was too much risk. Uh, and basically the, because the damages in that case was essentially the value of the contracts, all the claims that were actually submitted to the government under the multi-million dollar contracts over years times three. And so that's, wow. uh, that was a huge, and, and it was, as you said, the, the, there was false claims were part of this action as, as well as unlawful termination uh, of Marcus, right. um, the relator. And he used to be, actually, he was a formerly with Raytheon. So this was someone that was pretty experienced in the cyber arena. Um, and what also was a problem for Aerojet is there was a number of hacks that had occurred uh, and that was highlighted during the opening statement of the, yeah. the uh, you know, the relator saying, this is how unsecure the network was. Uh, the network was hacked multiple times and we believe our adversaries got the, the data. And in um, this, in this case, the relator is the legalese for the whistleblower, right? Exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. It's the essentially the whistleblower, uh, and, and, and the case is settled. So, the, and there's been only three cases to your point about, you know, these, you know, the civil cyber fraud initiative, how, how, how's it been used? There's been three cases. That was the second of the three, um, that were, um, settled, uh, but it has been highlighted numerous times. And I do think we, we should expect to see more cases brought under that initiative because it really is a priority of DOJ. And what I will say is that when you're looking at it, don't just think civil liability. I mean, false claims act is civil. But there's also the possibility of criminal liability, and 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 DOJ has made statements to that effect uh, over the last few years about how important it is that corporations that that people understand white collar crime is a priority. We're not; they don't want to just have a, a, a corporate fine resolve these cases, but they're looking to see if anyone is individually liable, so they can hold them accountable. And then you combine with that with the fact that we recently had the criminal conviction and sentencing for the former chief security officer at Uber, um, yeah, Joseph yeah. Sullivan, for how he handled a data breach. It was not that he himself hacked and hacked was a hacker, but how he personally was involved in concealing that hack, according to the government and the conviction. It's always the cover-up, right? And the cover-up, exactly. And so. And I think that has caused a lot of concern amongst CISOs and CISOs uh, as to, you know, are they going to be left holding the bag? Because yeah. and it's not. And, and what I will say is, you know, what I try to, to counsel folks, and this obviously is not legal advice, but just for an educational purpose, <laughs> but uh, is that it's not just their job. It's not just the IT department's job. It's the whole company's job. It's the management, the senior management. Uh, to ensure that you are, that you have secure networks, that you have, you're uh, complying with cybersecurity requirements, if that's what your contract requires. And that when, if there is a problem, if there is a cybersecurity incident, that it's appropriately reported 
and the appropriate disclosures are made. Uh, and, and that is all, it shouldn't fall on the shoulders of one person. Uh, within Especially the- when that person is now incentivized, heavily incentivized to blow the whistle since the, I think the interesting part about the cyber aspect under false claims cases uh, that's maybe slightly different from healthcare, as I understand it, is the people who would be the relator, the whistleblower in the cybersecurity situation are typically the admins, the security people. They know where the bodies are buried because exactly. they probably mm-hmm. got told to bury them. So it's, from my understanding, it's very, very easy for the relator's bar, the um, the attorneys who are sort of bringing these cases to be able to get the information they need to make the case because the person blowing the whistle has all the information. It's not, I think this was happening or this may have happened, or I work at a healthcare facility where other things were happening. It's, I can give you the logs or the lack of logs uh, and tell you exactly what, you know, against these controls, like what's missing. And and for that point, to that point, I think it's really important training. Training is essential. And it's essential that your, your employees um, and, and, you know, low level to high level, you know, throughout the company, understand that you take cybersecurity um, seriously, um, that any concerns that company that an employee has, and that there be an anonymous way of submitting them, that they're going to be investigated, and they're going to be, uh, there's going to be an investigation, and there's going to be action, there's going to be some response, that is just not it goes into some like, uh, black hole, some voicemail box that no one listens to that the, that the company is taking this seriously and they're taking action because what happens often and with all three of the, um, the civil cyber fraud initiative cases, the most recent was like jelly bean communications case, uh, out of Florida, uh, is that the whistleblowers felt like no one listened to them, that they were their their complaints, their concerns were disregarded by management. And so you have to ensure, um, that you have effective compliance, robust effective compliance programs. And that's really something that DOJ yeah. has been very much um, uh, impressing upon everyone, how important that is with, with, with regard to every type of regulatory regime, whether it's export control, um, anti-money laundering, and now with cybersecurity. Those those things, you know, those uh, the compliance programs need to be addressing all of those concerns. And they, they're not just check the box. You're actually, they, they're in, they're effective in, in detecting problems and fixing problems. So it's in not, that, and, and yeah, I think just to, to get back to the point, it's not that something bad happened that is the problem, right? It's not that you got hacked. It's not that there was a compromise of the information. It's not that something, those are inevitable. It's how it was handled before and after that is really what makes the difference if I'm oh, that's exactly jacob that's the, the point and and when i uh, talk to folks about the civil cyber fraud initiative that's exactly what i say it's you know it's not you're not going to get you're not going to be found liable because you had a hack or you right. had a cyber attack let's let's be honest you know i, I the last stat that i saw from last year is 94 percent of companies had some form of a cyber attack uh, now that's not doesn't mean everyone had a ransomware attack, but some form yeah. of you know various cyber attacks. I mean, cyber uh, cyber attack could be in sort of threat type issue. It could be um, you know a phishing incident. It could be a ransomware attack. It could be you know sure. it could be any of those things. Uh, you know, it could be malware. You know, all but it had something, and so you have to investigate it, and you have to. Uh, so 
you, when you learn when something suspicious occurs, you have to do an investigation. You have to yeah. make the appropriate disclosures. Uh, and 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 sure, and if there was anything compromised, you have to figure that out. You have to, and and not you know next you know that few weeks. You know it's it's something that is time of the of the essence, mm -hmm. and you have to make a determination. And sometimes um, because companies are not prepared, they don't have an instant response plan. That 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 takes longer than it should. Uh, yeah. And they, and management also the other issue that we see often is maybe the IT folks know some facts, but the managers don't. And there's, the, there's not a lot of communication to ensure that the decision makers, the ones making, typically making the disclosures, have all the pertinent information. Yeah, so does the, does the Supreme Court decision on false claims, does that, uh, inflame is probably the bad word. Is that... so, yeah, we've been talking about generally, but yeah, we haven't, we haven't let's, now let's turn to the case, which it, it is, um, for the from the perspective of uh, it is simplistic in some way, I will say this um, because number one, it's unanimous as you indicated earlier. So on June first, the Supreme Court came out in the case United States versus Super Value, and actually it was a Super Value and Safeway. It was two cases that were consolidated for purpose of the decision. Uh, and it involved, and it, it was interpreting Medicare and Medicaid regula regulations. I'm not going to get into the minutia as to what the what it was all about because it, it really did have to do with healthcare, as we were talking earlier, where there's so many cases. But what they said is that when it comes down to deciding, determining liability under the False Claims Act, what matters is a defendant's knowledge and beliefs when a claim is submitted, not after the fact, you know, okay. because one of the things is that uh, these cases were defended uh, in, and, and the defense would be, well, what the, the claim was objectively reasonable. Um, you know, it could be deemed objectively reasonable under a certain inter interpretation, but that's not, the Supreme Court said that doesn't matter. It, what matters is what this, the defendant, it's involved in this action, whatever action it is, what they actually believed about the truth or falsity of its representations to the government. Not a post hoc interpretation mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, you know, that you could come up with, but what this person thought and believed when that at the time it was submitted to the government. Uh, and so you can't try to come up with a post hoc interpretation that might render the claim accurate later down the road. And that's, that's a, 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 you know, my, I think that's a very um, less lawyerly definition of, uh, or description. Of yes, thank you for the translation. Uh, it is, uh, I empathize with needing to translate from lawyer speak because we have to do it from NIST speak all the time and it's always, it's always a challenge. So um, yeah, this, this concept of knowing and knowingly making claims seems to be the the lawyeriest uh, piece of the lawyer speak when it comes to false claims. I think that's the part that trips people up where they go, well, I submitted, I attested that I had implemented all these controls. I didn't know that there was a 171A with verification procedures. I didn't know that there was this other part of the DFARS clause. Like I didn't, I didn't, I did not know that that existed. Doesn't mean that you didn't submit a claim knowingly. Yes, and let, so let me let me drill down a little more on. So, where I think this 
it's there's it's limited to certain situations and the situations are here i mean i'm going to divide it up to three situations for your for the audience for the viewers first uh where there's evidence that the defendant had subject subjectively believed or knew the claim was false when it was submitted okay so that's that's an easy one right i mean easy from the from understanding purposes but there's two other instances that uh, your viewers might not be thinking about that I want to make sure they understand uh, this also applies to. Um, so the say the defendant adopted an incorrect interpretation even after they were advised of a substantial risk that his conduct was illegal. Okay, so that's so this would also uh, find liability in that situation or the defendant was aware that there was a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the claim was unlawful and submitted it to the government anyway. So, you know, and those are the types of cases that sometimes you're like, you know, you, you think about the defendants that are companies are wearing blinders or like, you know, eyes and ears. Don't, don't ask a question you don't want to know the answer to exactly. kind of a thing. Yeah. But it doesn't change a basic tenet of um, False Claims Act liability and that is if the, the company is operating in good faith and they they honestly believe the claim was tr was was accurate and truthful this doesn't mean that they're liable under the false claims act and that's that's an important piece but what it does mean is if it's if you're operating under if there's an ambiguous term in the contract or in the law and you don't know whether the claim is actually tr is is true and accurate then you need to seek mm. uh, a clarification. You need an advisory opinion, or you should be talking to your, you know, you should get legal. You have uh, lawyers look at it and say, okay, this is our, what we believe it means. Gotcha. Because why, what happens is going to happen as a result of this case is that there is going to be a lot more discovery. That's a word of art for, for lawyers, but in a case, after a claim is brought, what then the parties engage in, the lawyers uh, and, and the you know, lawyers counsel for the company and the counsel, uh, opposing uh, counsel, are they're going to ask for documents. They're going to ask for, you know, the parties to answer questions called in interrogatories. They're going to depose people. And, they, the, and it's all going to be around that what did the company know? What did it believe? at the time the claims were submitted. So any type of um, documentation, it, uh, communications, meetings, what does this term mean? Uh, what you know? What did, did everyone believe? Now the question is whose knowledge controls if it's a large company? Does it mean like the person who signed the certification? Well, did that know? In, did, small, did... in small organizations, which I think are increasingly, uh, this is getting increasingly close to home for, there's not a lot of places where those decisions lie. There's just not a lot of people in these organizations, which I think brings me to, and I know, Jason, you want to jump here in a second, but it brings me to one of the questions that we hear all the time, or one of the sentiments that I would say that we hear all the time is they're going after major companies. They're going after the mega prime companies. But uh, even if that were true, what I always see is that the things that affect the major primes tend to trickle down in the relationships between those very large companies and their suppliers, because because it's such a large risk for your very large customers, they 
sort of shell up and they're less likely to be uh, altruistic to your uh, being a small company because it's a big problem for them, even if it isn't directly a problem for you. Now, that doesn't mean I think sometimes people are like, we're all small. They can't arrest all of us. Let's do crime. Um, but it is uh, it is maybe, I think, well, a little... I, I, I laughed about I, I don't mean... No one do don't don't do crime. Don't <laughs> like, do crime, that's, folks. Don't that's do crime. That's yeah. not even okay. <laughs> those, don't leave those poem items open. You're a criminal. But it's one of those things where even if the DOJ said we're not going after 50 person companies, for all the 50 person companies that work for the Raytheons and the Lockheeds and the Aerojets, what affects them affects how they deal with you. So, uh, you know, it's just this. Well, I, I will, uh, let me interject on one piece just to say. Sure, sure. Um, it, one of the things that small companies should be very wary of is that in it so there's been a lot of announcements from doj in the last year uh and one of those has been this uh they want uh companies to come forth they want voluntary disclosures and so there in that instance there's incentive for the primes the big companies to say well we didn't do anything let me tell you who did and and then to give uh -oh. up the, the smaller companies, and I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that there is this incentive um, to, you know, for the primes and the larger companies to look at their supply chain to see if there's any weak links and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be doing business with this, gotcha. this company anymore because it's a liability risk. And by the way, tell DOJ because they might get benefits as a result of that disclosure. Wow. It might help them in the future. Uh, yeah. With regards to commerce, I will say, Department of Commerce in the export control arena, mm -hmm. they they came out with a, a striking announcement recently that they, if you self if you make a disclosure about someone a third party's conduct, and you find out they're violating the law, that the Commerce Department will give you like a free pass next time you get in trouble because Whoa. you've actually reported on somebody else. Um, Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> wow, that's well, what, so you have to link to that for sure. And, Commerce, and again, you know, you have this is there. The government really is trying, you know, the it is a whole of government kind of approach to get folks to disclose, you know, violations of the law, um, and uh, with in in any arena essentially, uh, and and basically get people to be have more robust compliance programs, and and they. They, and identifying uh, and making self-disclosures, uh, the government and DOJ specifically is saying will help the companies in the long run because if we find out about it, you're going to have a, a, a substantial penalty. Wow. Uh, but if you come forward, that will be greatly reduced, and, and, and that's why you should do this. Um, right. So essentially, so I, I say that because in addition to the – cybersecurity liability risk, because you have also, you have a civil liability risk, right? You have class action lawsuits, potentially, depending on what type of data is involved. Um, you have state attorney generals going after companies for cybersecurity issues. And then you have on, on top of that, a potential that you have bigger companies or competitors reporting you to, to DOJ. Yikes. Jason, jump in here. What were you going to say? All right. So this was probably more relevant about 10 minutes ago, but I still want to jump in there. And I think that there's a huge difference. Um, listen, I was just soaking in the knowledge. It was a lot of stuff. This is definitely not my ball of wax. 
Um, these are the places where I'd like to be a sponge instead of the, uh, the, the hose, you know, sending out the water. Um, so uh, the, I, I just want to point out that there's a huge difference between a company that is exploited by a zero day and it comes to find out that something was wrong in their you know, entire environment and a company that sets up an enclave to achieve a certification, but operates their business out of a separate environment that's supposed to be attached. The business is supposed to be attached to the enclave that's certified, but they're just operating out of their regular environment. Um, and, and I think that that's where we get into these delineations. You said, you know, obviously, um, Stephanie, you had said that, you know, the people that are trying to do good, the people that are trying to do the things the right yes. way are the ones where it's not going to be a knowingly ignorance. It's, it's a blissful ignorance type deal. Um, and, and, and knowingly disregarding the requirements is kind of where people start getting in trouble with these claims acts, correct? Yes. I mean, and, and obviously the standard is not just actual knowledge, but you know, what is and, and what the Supreme Court did not do in the in the recent decision, uh, unfortunately, um, in in the um, super value decision, it did not describe, it did not define what is recklessness under the False Claims Act. What circumstances are sufficient for a finding that the defendant had subject, sub, sorry, uh, sub, subjective awareness of an unjustifiable risk? You know, so those determinations and that type of analysis is where these cases are going to be like very extensive. There's going to be a lot of litigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the unjustifiable risk, you know, what is that that risk level? Uh, and Jason, to your point, I, I, you know, I think that's a really important one, because in the in the background, you know, when you said the zero day, I was thinking solar winds um, and things of, you know, a case like the unprecedented unforeseeable kind of attacks you know the, the truth of the matter is our adversaries i mean in, in in principally you know china and russia i mean they have hackers that are really you know they are 24 7 looking at certain companies and trying to find a way into them mm -hmm. they're there i mean i think our even our government has acknowledged that it's not a matter of if you're going to have a cyber attack but when so to, just to be prepared, companies, if, you're, if they have the preparation um, and they're not, you know, they, they don't disregard any cybersecurity advisories, that they're actually taking it seriously. You can't do everything. I, I can't, you know, I, can't, I don't know a company that's 100% perfect, nor is any person. Like no one is perfect, under, uh, you know, every day of the week. But if you're doing, taking the steps, you're watching, you're auditing your logs, you're, you're taking, you know, you have EDR or, and you have all the various, um, you know, cybersecurity best practices, industry best practices, or a majority of them um, that are contained in the NIST 800-171, which I know you both are much better versed than I am, you know, the 110 controls, I'm like, yeah, we don't have time to go through all of them today. Sure. <laughs> but, if they're, but if they're really in good faith trying to do that, and there still is an attack. There's a, you know, there's a hack, you know, then what, what I hope the message isn't from various companies is that then you're screwed and you're going to be liable and your, sure. you know, your company is going to be in big, uh, you know, trouble like financially and reputationally, et cetera. It should be, okay. We had, a, we had a cyber attack. We now have to take the, you know, do an investigation. We got to contain it. We need to remediate and we have to do the proper disclosures. Uh, and, 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 and the concern I have with some of the um, um, pronouncements recently, the rulemaking, is that all of that takes time. It's not something that you're going to know 
within 24 to 48 hours, you know, what data was accessed, who did it, and you're back up and running as if nothing happened before. Right. Just that's just that's impractical to think that's happening. Well, on that on that note, I have a question. So, in your opinion, not legal advice, um, <laughs> I operate a defense contractor, medium sized company, and we're excited because we are working on a next gen fighter. Let's say sixth gen fighter. We're downstream, crazy data flows, and lo and behold, we are either the target of cyber crime because we are a high availability environment and so disruption equals money or we are the target of some sort of uh, uh, espionage or uh, you know China Russia affiliated thing because of the nature of our business or our role in the supply chain count the ways why we might be uh, uh, why you know calamity would befall our organization here uh, however in my defense in my defense I was waiting on the CMMC rule uh, to get started on my uh, my 800-171 controls, case closed. See you later, DOJ. I mean, I think that's a, that's pretty that's pretty uh, solid argument, right? When a former federal prosecutor answer, laughs in your face oh, when you tell them I didn't get started on my 800-171 controls because I was waiting on the CMMC rule, that's probably not a good sign, folks. No, no that's not. That is not a good argument. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I think while we wait for the CMMC rule, there is um, oh around the country. Uh, in addition to the defense industry requirements and deforest requirements, um, many states are actually coming out with requirements that you have to have what's called reasonable cybersecurity. Okay, folks? Oh, boy. Just, okay, reasonable. Um, hmm. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has sanctioned companies that did also did not have, what, what they, what's the phrase they use? Reasonable, reasonable. cybersecurity. Everybody say it at all. Reasonable. Okay. All right, reasonable. So, what is reasonable is uh, it's going to differ from from industry to industry, but I think that there is you know some common themes that you see. Um, one of them being MFA, uh, multi-factor authentication. Sure, yeah. You know, they tend to converge. I think that you know adequate, reasonable. These ideas vary sector to sector, domain to domain. You know, we tend to see. We've talked about this on the podcast before. You see the same recommendations in the joint advisories that come out. You see the yeah. same controls. You see the same sort of stuff which is a lot of times why we always say expecting the 171 baseline to somehow fundamentally change is probably unreasonable because so much of it is represented in these common practices. So, you know, just to sort of get back to the facetious, you know, joke, uh, waiting on the CMMC rule to implement your 171 controls would probably be considered unreasonable uh, from, from this perspective. Exactly. If, if your saving grace is we took reasonable steps based off of what we knew at the time. Well, also, I think it's going to uh, false claims act liability is not based on CMMC. It's based sure. upon what does your contract say? Yeah, does your contract point. say that you have to comply with DFARS section 7012? I would assume it does. If you're, you've gotten a contract, uh, you know, they've been incorporating that for since at least 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so if your contract requires that, and you're not complying with it and you're submitting claims, then you potentially could have a false claims act. Violation. And the 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 treble damages, uh, the triple the damage rate under the False Claims Act, um, 
much like the cost of a data breach or the cost of implementing security controls, my understanding is the damages sought via the False Claims Act do not scale down based off the size of the company that is involved. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it's based upon the claims, the amount. So whatever you can commit is submitting to the government. So every time you're submitting, I don't have a piece of a claim, but I got a piece of paper to the government. <laughs> you have just a stack of false claims next to you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and you have to understand, I mean, well, not, you don't have to understand, but your viewers should understand that, you know, when you have plaintiff's attorneys, there is, there is a, a group of attorneys that represent whistleblowers that do these types of cases. What are they looking for? They're going to be looking for, okay, how many claims were submitted? What, what were the size of these contracts? You know, it was multi-million dollars, then you're going to treble that, you know, because every wow. single claim that's submitted for payment. So every time you ask, you submit, and, and when I say submit, you're not even submitting them by paper, you're emailing them, right? You're sure. sending an email, like, you know, here's our, our bill, here you go, you know, and then you get, uh, and sometimes there's portals, and you know, you get payment. And every time you're getting a payment and you're certifying, you're complying with the material terms of the contract, and you're not, because you're not meeting those, uh, or, and I think, well, I will say is, you know, we were talking about a cyber breach, you know, one, a cyber attack will not be the ground that will not make you liable under the false right. claim. But what will is if you have a cyber attack and you decide we're going to hide this, we're going to conceal it, we're not going to tell the government and oh then they find out about it. Yeah. Nobody will ever know. Yeah. That's, um, it's always the cover up, right? It's always the cover up. Well, and Bitdefender did a recent survey. Uh, and found that 71% of companies in, in the United States, now they, you know, obviously they're weighing them sampling. I think it was like thousands of companies though in the United States where their staff, their IT staff was told, we, we got to keep this quiet. Yeah, that's, um, like the reputation. yeah, that's definitely, I would definitely say that in my anecdotal experience, uh, especially when I was working as a consultant, um, you know, that, that tends to be what I, it what I saw as very common sentiment and, you know, the reluctance to report or talk about it rather than, um, rather than the opposite. So, I mean, this, thank you for summarizing this like massive Supreme court decision and all of this history. We were also recently talking about, it seems like every five minutes, there's some news, uh, item that's coming out. Do you want to briefly talk about what the heck is going on with this solar winds issue? So I, I well, to the extent that I know, well, sure, all I sure. know, and when it was public right now, is that Solar Winds has publicly filed an SEC filing notifying the public that they've received Wells notices. And Wells notices, and what a Wells notice is, is basically notice provided by the SEC um, that they have preliminarily determined um, that the company or its officers, in this instance, it's both the company and certain officers committed securities violations. Um, we don't know as the specifics. It appears to be something related to cybersecurity and, and disclosures before and after the breach. Um, wow. But that's as much as we know at this point. Uh, what I what I think, what I am concerned about from a just a, um, one of my goals, you know, that I'm out in the private sector is to help companies uh, and to help people in the cybersecurity area. In, Not in to imply that in your previous role, you weren't to, out there to help. It's just I was different... helping, but I mean, it was a different, like <laughs> I, I was trying to protect national security and yes, and, and, and we use prosecutions. And so I prosecuted a number of people, it's countless of investigating, you know, hundreds and hundreds of investigations. But 
what I guess, and, and I did do outreach then too, but what my, my concern is, is that the government has been taking this whole of government approach to try to get companies to report, to share information, to work together, to partner yeah. with- That's all CISA talks about, is public-private yeah. partnership. That's all the national cyber strategy talks about. That's all they talk about. Yeah, 100% collaboration. So, and, and for the SEC to go after SolarWinds, which from all public accounts, they didn't, you know, this attack was unforeseeable. Uh, it was unprecedented. It, you know, it, it, Russia was, you know, orchestrated by the Russian government. Uh, uh, and it was identified by FireEye, you know, and and not the government, uh, not the U.S. government, and and also that when FireEye did identify it, there was this emergency disclosure by CISA, seemingly uh, very transparent, exactly, and saying and and it, implica- it, it impacted thousands. Uh, I remember, uh, I remember people on uh, Infosec Twitter and LinkedIn takes and articles uh, commending SolarWinds for their transparency during that process. And and Tim Brown, the CISO, has been, uh, unlike other uh, you know cases we've seen, he's come out and basically has done a lot of speaking, a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot of interviews about how important it is to partner with the, the government, how helpful they were, um, and and the importance of that this partnership. And and giving tips, you know, basically, yes, you know, after action report essentially. You know, this is what we 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 could right. have done better. Everybody, but again, every I there's no cyber attack where you know everything goes well, right? You know, if there's been you know there's something that you're like, oh, this is how they got in. All right, so next time we have to fix this. The government itself has had hacks, right? Sure. And so just to to presume that anyone's perfect is in this arena is, is uh, number one. It just it, that's just a mistake. Yeah. But. What my concern is, is by SEC taking action against what I think, you know, a lot of CISOs will say, you know, oh my God, if Tim Brown is getting, you know, uh, charged, which we don't know yet, we don't know, we have to wait to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how how can I protect myself? Because, you know, again, and they had a hack that no one even could imagine. Yeah, they did. They had to dance with the boogeyman face to face. And it was... Uh you know, horrific in terms of how widespread and impactful it was, we, you know, the classified details will probably never uh, be released in terms of just how bad it was within the government, the intelligence community, and so on. Yeah, you know, the government, you would think would be giving them a medal for finding it, telling them about it, working with them, you know, uh, it's, like I said, we get to see the details, I assume, of, of yes. what SEC is going after here. But, um, but uh, there has been, uh, so this reminds me, there was another, a law firm that was actually, um, ha- was a subject of the Microsoft Exchange hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the SEC wanted them to turn over the names of their clients whose information was was obtained illegally, on all, in, like through the hack. And the law firm said, no, we're not going to do that. And the SEC is basically engaged in litigation to require them to turn over the names of their clients. Wow. And what and so we've seen, uh, you know, that the the victims of a cyber attack have also have been really aggressively investigated, uh, and and sometimes sanctioned uh, for conduct. Uh, the beatings will continue until collaboration improves. So, and and what you wonder is is the SEC is are these actions something that like 
do they are they thinking about what impact it could have on the CISAs, you know, and FBI's overtures to the yeah. private the private sector and DOJ's and is uh, is is Jen Easterly and uh, and the, and the National Cyber Director calling up SEC being like, can you guys chill out for a minute? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the other thing is that there these there's coming they're asking for these rules, these proposed cybersecurity rules. And what their rules require is within four days of discovery um, that you have like a material cybersecurity incident that you make a public disclosure. Whoa. And even Rapid7, uh, which I, you know, I think is very knowledgeable in this area, has it come out and said, that's a really bad idea. You know, because, and those are my words, I'm paraphrasing their comments, but essentially uh, there's, no, there's no exceptions in that four day uh, requirement for national security reasons for a law enforcement investigation to to make sure that you've reme you know remediated that you fix the vulnerability before you're disclosing it publicly so that if you disclose this a vulnerability that's not fixed publicly right you, know, you can have other people other you know hackers going into your yeah. network and making it worse there could be copycat you know uh, attacks on your competitors or you, you know that yeah. that oh if you have that vulnerability who all who, uh, what other companies have that vulnerability so i think there's you know there's got to be a lot more coordination uh, on some of these issues uh and i do think that uh we'll we'll wait to see but one of the one of the rationale i read recently and actually today's some remarks that i read today from the sec is that one of the reasons that they're they're looking at these cyber incidents and, and looking at companies when they have cyber attacks is to protect um, people's PII, personally identifiable information. But that's not the per that's not the mission of the SEC. Yeah. The SEC is their mission is to protect investors, to mm -hmm. invest the, the market, <laughs> the stock market. And so the 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 rules and laws designed to protect individuals like you and me when we have our information compromised is the data breach laws. The mm -hmm. state, ha every state, all 50 states have a different set of data breach laws. Uh, should we have a federal law? Yes, but we don't. Mm -hmm. So because we, Congress has not gotten their act together to enact a federal data privacy law. So in that, in the absence of that, every state has acted, enacted data, data privacy laws and they dictate you know when people are notified um and every state is different some are as short as 10 days but that's really only two states that are like that the majority of states require notification within 30 to 60 days yeah. of the um the cyber attack you know basically that you the company learns of it and identifies that this specific person's information was uh was accessed by an unauthorized person mm -hmm. yeah it and seems like yeah, it seems like the patchwork, the privacy landscape, the security landscape, the regulatory landscape, as it converges on itself, seems like the patchwork will get more patchy before it gets less patchy. When you look forward um, with false claims acts that are in the queue and what's going on with these uh, announcements, we talked about commerce, we talked about SEC, FTC, talked about DOJ, DOD. Uh, you know, as you see this, I mean, where do you, what do you, what would you predict? uh the world looks like from through this lens in 12 18 24 months is it is it more uh, announcements is it more settlements is it what, what do you think uh so i i have to say i'm, I'm apprehensive of ai 
Um, and I, and so, because that's the one thing we didn't talk about today, right? We talked about all these <laughs> other agencies, <laughs> but um, what we are all also seeing is because of um, artificial intelligence, the, the phishing attacks are getting more sophisticated. They're less, you know, it's, it's harder to detect for a normal person. Um, there is, you know, there, I just was reading how AI um, is, is being used to develop malware. I mean, that's just, that yeah. is frightening uh, from my perspective as someone that works, had, you know, spent my career in national security and now I'm helping company with cybersecurity and just really worried about, you know, the, our, our national security in, uh, because China could use this, you know, AI for malware. There's there, the rules that we follow in the United States are not followed by every country uh, sure. around the world, especially when it comes to AI. And so that I have to say is one of my biggest concerns. Um, I, I really think that um, my hope is that because of the concerns uh, about AI that Congress does finally come to the realization that they need to take action in this space and do something and enact some laws. Uh, EU has proposed some laws with regards to the regulation of AI. Uh, and so maybe that will spurn um, um, something to happen in the United States. Um, but I, I do see what I, what, you know, in the short term, you know, 12 to 18, 24 months, sure. I think there's, there's uh, many more states will be adopting or enacting um, privacy laws this year. We've seen, you know, already this year, I think there's been um, six that actually uh, have been adopted uh, and they don't go into effect yet. Um, we're going to see more biometric type laws protecting our biometric data. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's going to just be very hard for companies to keep up with all these new laws. And I think that's, that's going to be that where, uh, and the Supreme Court, another Supreme Court decision came out uh, recently, just um, yesterday, uh, in relation to when can companies be held liable, and and this case was related to um, typically you have to have substantial business in a in a certain state before you can be held liable. And this state, out of Pennsylvania, basically said no. You just have to register to business, do business, and you in that instance you could be uh, basically. Uh, having to respond to a lawsuit in Pennsylvania, even though wow. you don't do business there. It was a Norfolk Southern uh, case. Uh, and I can get, come back. And I'm, yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to say. Talk about that because we're almost out of time. Yeah, I was um, just going to say, this is so much helpful information. And thank you so much. I was going to, we're going to make sure to link to your LinkedIn profile as well, because you're always putting out awesome content on there for people to check out. I mean, there's just a, it's, it's, I'm always struck by the interdisciplinary the sudden, seemingly sudden interdisciplinary nature of talking about cybersecurity. And now very uh, intense legal uh, topics are very relevant to what you do. Business, I mean, you know, business dynamics, understanding the nature of business has become increasingly relevant, if not completely required. Regulatory approaches, I mean, there's just, there to say nothing of the technology that you need to have an understanding of. So anytime- I, I think it's, it's, what has surprised me since leaving um, the government is the interplay of like export controls and sanctions and cybersecurity. And they're all, you know, when you, what companies operate even in, in just nationally, um, there's also laws that apply, export laws that applies within the United States. And I think people just don't understand that. You know, so if yeah. you have a foreign national that, you know, is working, in your space and you're not you don't have a technology control plan that that can be problematic but i do have to run um yes. it's been so nice talking to um 
Jason and Jacob, you both, and, and it's always, I, I mean, I, I love your conferences and you guys put out great content too. And I've always enjoyed reading uh, what you guys, your posts, and et cetera. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Thank Stephanie. You. We are back with Lauren Ayers, the great and powerful friend of the show, friend of CS2, everyone's favorite former contracting officer and PSC VP extraordinaire. Lauren, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me back on the show. Um, evidently, I didn't bore you guys quite enough. You'd like round two here. All time, all time ratings, all time ratings, rave reviews in the comments and the, the emails. Uh, everyone loves it whenever you're able to uh, share your knowledge because you know the dark magic that us mere mortals uh, have only heard uh, whispers about uh, from, from your perspective as a contracting officer. And that's why we wanted to have you on today because 171 Rev 3 has been published. CMMC is a program that have, is going to evaluate 171 R3, but 171 requirements are required if you have DFAR 7012 in your contracts. So when we see a big jump in the requirements, which 171 R3 is a relatively large jump over the current standard, will companies get an extension on how long they get to implement those requirements? And if there's an extension, how will that play into the CMMC timeline? And so there's lots of speculation. I had a very, very scientific poll on LinkedIn that asked people's opinion, and they all said, we think that there is going to be a year-long extension that DOD will provide so that people with DFAR 7012 have 12 months at least to implement the Delta in 800-171 Rev 3. I did a little bit of reading. Apparently this is something known as a class deviation. Uh, please help us uh, understand what the heck is going on. What is a class deviation? Have they been issued before? What's, what's happening here? Absolutely. So as you know, I was trained in the DOD, so I am going to share some slides because if it was not on a PowerPoint, then it didn't happen, as we all know. <laughs> she um, brought so slides and my excitement level just went through the roof. Oh yeah. Strap in everybody. Yeah. All right. all right. So as per usual, where we start in our Russian nesting doll of flowing down through, uh, what are we talking about? So I normally go, as we talked about last time, to acquisition.com. So when you talk about what is a class deviation, it really is, as you can see in the red box here, it's, it's the authority to deviate from an established policy or procedure or provision um, that's essentially you're doing something that's inconsistent with the FAR. So it requires approval at certain levels to do something different than the FAR normally authorizes. So we're talking DFARs, we'll get there in a minute. So this is just the very basic definition of what a deviation from the FAR is. Um, this next level down, I had to do different screenshots, kind of goes through a little bit more of the definition of the deviation. But really the one I wanted to kind of pull you through here is, you know, E is the authorization of lesser or greater limitations of the use of any provision, clause, policy, or procedure. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, in FAR 1.402, what I wanted to point out here is it essentially says, uh, FAR deviations are one of those things that happen, um, but they are a lengthy process or can be a lengthy process depending upon the ask. But FAR is essentially saying just because it may be difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So kind of keep that in the back of our minds as we step through uh, the rest of this discussion. 
So there's actually two different versions of a deviation. There's something called an individual deviation, which frankly is what most contracting officers likely deal with, because these are ones that really only apply to a particular procurement um, or situation and can be authorized at the agency level or lower. Those are the ones that most of the time I dealt with when I was a contracting officer. Um, when I was putting together RFPs or contracts, we would have a deviations package and it would go through each clause or term that we were looking to deviate from and um, you know, who had to approve it, whether it was our local activity or the Pentagon or higher. So those are not what we're talking about here today. What we're talking about is a class deviation. And class deviations are really um, looking at a broader agency impact. So the where I what I highlighted down here for D for DOD, essentially at the far level, it says if you're gonna do a class deviation for DOD, follow the DFARS. Um, okay. Obviously, NIST 1871 or 171 applies to something other than DOD, but I was going to follow the DOD path here for this okay. discussion. Nice and consistent so far. That's good to see. Yes, um, and also links back to you know what we talked about last time. Perfect. So what DFAR says about class deviations is um, the approval authority for DOD for any class deviation on these certain things: so procurement integrity, copyright, cost of cost accounting standards has to go to, gotta love this. So it's not, it's no longer called DPAP anymore, the Defense um, Acquisition Technology and Analyst, uh, Logistics, DPAP. That's now DPC, but we're gonna ignore the fact that there's some, some aged language in here. The point is it still has to go up to the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So for people, for people just listening, on screen right now is an acronym that is, I'm not joking here, O-U-S-D-A-T-N-L-D-P-A-P slash D-P-C. Correct. That's not a joke. Yes. Okay. So we, we used to call it DPAP. It's now called D-P-C. I think this is just one of those areas. I mean, the FAR, as you guys have seen from my hard copy books, is lengthy. So I think they yeah. just haven't updated that particular acronym yet. Um, but you'll recognize DPAP when, when we talk about the 2015 class deviation, and then we'll talk about DPAP. Gotcha, gotcha. So this is essentially saying anything that kind of has a large overarching impact needs to be approved at the OSD level, which makes sense. You don't want individual agencies or activities making that kind of a decision. Okay. <clears throat> so that's saying for sure these things have to be approved by, by D, uh, DPC. This is essentially this next level down says, okay, so if it's not those things that we've specifically called out for DPC to approve, it can be approved at the senior procurement executives for the individual um, services or DCMA. As long as, you got this is the Russian nesting doll again, right? It's like, okay, these things can be approved, have to be approved, uh, and except for. So DPAP has to approve everything we looked at here under 402, under the policy, and under 201, 404, class deviations. Um, if the deviation falls into one of these four buckets, which is have a significant effect beyond the internal operating procedures, procedures of the department or agency, has a significant cost or administrative impact on contractors or officers, diminishes any preference given to small business concerns by the FAR, the DFARS, or something that extends to requirements imposed by statute or regulation of other agencies, such as SBA or the Department of Labor, then it again has to go back to OSD. So this is one of those bifurcations of authority saying, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, you should have the ability to control your destiny. 
but for these things that are gotcha. a broader impact. And so I would I would argue that what we're talking about here is at least sub subparagraph B one two A B one two B and likely D as well. Yeah, um, just because of what you know, what we know this is going to impact in the broad base. Meaning, this is going to be a pretty high level decision. Correct. From everything that I've seen and from what history has shown us, if there is a class deviation, I believe it's going to have to be done at the DPC level. Okay. So, um, hey, what do you know? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, now we have a slide for those just listening DPC, Defense Price Country, class deviations. Yes. So we used, I, I went to DPC when we did our last um, webinar as well. And essentially there's, there's a place and um, for those that um, are looking at the screen, there's the website address and we'll have links as well. So this page is updated for all the current class deviations that defense pricing and contracting has authorized for use across the DOD. So um, it, you know, there's a handful, I just took the screenshot of the top ones um, and there's a whole archive. So you can actually go year by year as to what was done previously. Um, and as this is called out in the red box, right? This is allowing the organizations to deviate from the FAR or DFARS. So there's several in effect right now. The one that I think we're gonna try to narrow in on is kind of what happened the last time. Um, so that was actually a 2016 class deviation. So you have to go to the archive and then all the way down, the very last one um, is the class deviation 2016-01 on safeguarding covered defense information and cyber incident reporting. So this was effective. They, they signed out this class deviation in October of 2015. Um, and if for those that are able to see the screen, there's also a call out box that essentially two and a half months later, the class deviation was superseded by a DFARS interim rule. The 2013 um, D018. Yeah. So, um, which so we'll link to the uh, we'll link to the now uh, now ancient history of CMMC video that will show you all of the rules in the timeline. If anybody's interested for that. Yes, and you and and uh, and Jason know this a lot better than I do. Um, but what I wanted to pull out here is to kind of show what does a class deviation look like when it's issued. So this is literally a screenshot. I tried to get it on one page, so it looks a little bit weird. Um, but this was signed by Ms. Claire Grady, who at the time in 20 in October of 2015 was the director of what was called Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy, or DPAP, what is now called DPC. And essentially, it calls out that deviation to give offers nine months from contract award to comply with the security requirements. And this is kind of where it says, you know, if you have to notify the contracting officer, if you're not going to be able to comply. Um, so that's really what the deviation said. The next couple of slides, I actually pulled out um, what the deviation looks like, again, to kind of show people, um, you know, we talked about it the last time when there's a date, a month and a year, that's the effectivity of when that clause or provision was updated. So when it's a deviation, it will actually say, because the title 252-204-7008 existed before, um, and then as prescribed in 204-7304, you were to use the provision, this deviation. Ah, so again, okay. as we talked about before, provision is only in the RFP. It doesn't end up in the contract because, as you said, Jacob, 7012 is kind of what follows through the execution of the contract. This is just saying, what do you have to certify to with your proposal that you will be compliant with the requirements of the contract. Gotcha. Um, yeah, the provisions are like, hey, just a heads up, these clauses are coming in the contract. 
then you get the contract and then the clauses are in there. So 7008 says 7012 is going to be in your contract. That's cool, right? And then the contract shows up with 7012 and they said, we're cool, right? And then we and then we go on and do our business from there. Exactly. And that's why we have some that are provisions that are only in section L or M of the RFP and L and M drops off of the contract when it's awarded. And then there's some that follow through, you know, 7008 is in, invoking 7012, which will remain and stay with the contract um, as it goes. And so this deviation, literally, if you were awarded a contract or a modification in that kind of two and a half month period between October of 2015 and December of 2015, you would have had something that looks like this because this would have been the deviation that gave the contractor that extra nine months to work with the contracting officer and DOD CIO. So this is, I had to break up the provision into two slides, but this essentially says you can, you'll be working with the contracting officer, but at the end of the day, DOD CIO is who's going to approve or disapprove your request to deviate from 800-171 prior to contract. Yeah, this was always a point that I uh, ma made for people whenever we saw the shift from CMMC 1.0 to CMMC 2.0, uh, people were expecting sort of big changes because the CMMC program was being housed under DOD CIO. And I would always try to remind people that you have always answered to DOD CIO because your request to vary from the requirements goes to and is adjudicated by the CIO's office. So CMMC going to the CIO's office probably won't result in anything different than you would have seen in the past, but most people hadn't participated in that process. So they weren't always, uh, always aware. It's a, it's a smaller world, I think, than people imagine whenever uh, you sort of brush up against all these clauses and provisions and deviations. Uh, although it is complicated, it's not all that complex, if that makes sense. So, Absolutely. Lauren, and, in the in the portion that you've highlighted, um, it says you know authorized representative of the DoD CIO will um, disapprove offer request to deviate from NIST 800-171 requirements in writing prior to contract award. Any approved deviation from 800-171, right? So, my question is, is that when Rev three goes final, that is the requirements of NIST 800-171, right? So, why would a deviation be required? Yeah, so the deviation would be required if you can't comply with Rev 3, right? So okay. this is the deviation from 2015 that gave that automatic nine months. Um, right. Thank you, Jason, for that. You essentially led me kind of right into a... I right promise into I haven't seen these slides yet. <laughs> no, you're just that good. You're just that good. Um, I'll go back to the other one, but uh, this is kind of, you know, the thrust of it is this is the current 252-204-7008 that is effective as of October 2016. So again, we talked about the last time I was on, just because the change number says June 2023, an effective date of June 2023 at the top left corner. When you're looking at a clause or a provision, you still have to look at the effectivity of that particular term. So this is what came out of the rulemaking. So they had the interim, um, they issued the interim rule in, in August, and then they had the class deviation that said, okay, you get nine months. And then the interim rule went final in December of 2015, and then final effective action. And Jacob and Jason, you all know this better than I do, but tracing the dates that we're seeing in these just couple of things that I've highlighted, you can see the path that this one particular provision has taken. Um, and the final effectivity of October 2016 from that DFARS case is what you see here and in, in what's in, in effect today. 
Um, and this kind of goes to, to your question, uh, Jason, the first kind of red box that I've highlighted that talks about when you, so again, this is a provision, you have to sign that you will be in compliance with these particular requirements at the time of proposal in order to be eligible for award. So this is saying as a contractor, as an industry participant, I will be compliant with the NIST that is in effect at the time of the solicitation. Um, and it says, you know, not later than December 31, 2017, which I think was that one year, maybe timeline, yeah. Jacob, when you did your, <laughs> your, uh, uh, very scientific poll, that might be where people were pulling the year from. Well, and I think just intuitively people go, oh, this might take about a year, but, uh, even, you know, even if that's probably true, like you said, the, the trap that we find ourselves in is that people have language in their contract and in the provision that they agreed to and are agreeing to between now and the time that Rev 3 is published that says you, it doesn't say you will comply with Rev 2. It says you will comply with the version that exists at the time of your solicitation. So once it goes final, then all of a sudden it switches over to Rev 3. Now, um, people that we know and respect in the ecosystem, like uh, Bob Metzger have said clearly uh, there needs to be some sort of an ex of uh, an extension, otherwise known as a class deviation, that would allow time for you to implement the delta, which I don't disagree with because, like I said, if you're going to expand the uh, standard by like thirty percent, then there should be a but that begs the question: Will it be a year? Will it be nine months? Will it be six months? Because for a lot of companies. They're going to be staring at Rev3 starting from zero, and it will take them much longer than whatever the class deviation would happen to be, because I doubt that the DoD is going to issue a class deviation for 24 months, right? Like they, I, They're not going to issue a three-year-long class deviation. So you know, in my mind, whenever you look at the, the timeline of what's happening here, we're supposed to have 800-171 and 800-171A published together by Q1 of 2024 at the latest, at which point if DPC issued a 12-month class deviation, that would take us to Q1 of 2025. Based off what DOD has said about CMMC rulemaking, CMMC rulemaking would then become effective right around that time at the end of the class deviation if you get one and if it's 12 months. But if you haven't started on your requirements yet, that 12 months is not enough time for you to get ready for your assessment when CMMC kicks off at the expiration of the class deviation, if there even is one. Exactly. And that really is kind of the question that, you know, the, the meeting you and I met at Jacob, you know, when we were sitting in the room with DOD and, and, and officials and, and industry participants and just... I would say the the lack of common ground of understanding how closely industry is um, implementing the seventy twelve and seven thousand and eight like the understanding that DoD has to use to your point you know there may be a lot of folks that haven't even done Rev two much less jumping up potentially thirty percent more controls to Rev three how much is that understood by um, by the decision makers I think is the question of whether or not they're going to issue a deviation and and for how long. Yeah. Right. Because if they're looking at this, that look, this is from 2016. NIST 800-171 has been a thing if you have been awarded a contract even from 2015. Right. And we already told you as no later than December 2017, you need to have these controls in place. And because I listen, because I'm a fan of the show, 
uh, and have been to CS2 and, and kind of talked to some folks in this industry, that's where I think there's still a lack of common understanding of the adoption of the NIST standards. And what does that really mean once we flip the switch and say, Rev3 is now effective, um, you know, 171A is out there, CMMC is going to be close, closely followed behind, as you just said, through the timeline. So what's the problem kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to think about in terms of the timeline. I think that the, the main way to sum it up is to say that if you have, if you have a class deviation, I think the reasonable conclusion is there ought to be a class deviation for the 171 Rev3 Delta but the 171 Rev3 Delta class deviation will not be enough time for you to do 171 Rev2 and the 171 Rev3 Delta. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, they will, I, I would imagine they will, there will be some sort of a class deviation. The question is for how long? Now, I believe this is considered um, a major rule or I forget the exact right. terminology. Jacob, you probably have it. So there will at least be, I think, a 60 day um, from the time it goes final to when it's effective. Mm -hmm. I think there'll be kind of a 60 day delay already built in. Um, absent any kind of class deviation, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's I think, the other, the other point too, is the CMMC rulemaking is, is on its timeline. And then the 800-171 revision is on its timeline. And the 800-171 revision is what's driving the class deviation for 7012. And so if 171 comes out and the class deviation comes out as a result and the class deviation expires, and then CMMC rulemaking happens to finish after it's done, you will still not have had your requirements fully implemented, even though there was this big, long extension, which if we were to switch our perspectives here and put on our government hat, you could say you, I, this is not the, th this doesn't gain us a lot of fans. I'm just saying, if you were looking at it from the government's perspective, they would say you've had 7012 since 2013 and 90% of the requirements from 2013 are still the requirements in 171 Rev 2 today. And then we reduced the number of requirements in 2016 when we came up with 800-171 in an attempt to make it easier. And then we didn't even talk about showing up and revising and assessing those requirements until 2020. And then we took another few years to go through additional rulemaking during that time, the standard was revised to change its structure. And then we gave another extension for full implementation. If you look at it from the government's perspective and you zoom out far enough, it is a lot of extensions. It's been basically a thing for a decade. And so it's just, it's, it's, it is um, a delicate situation because that's not helpful for the companies that need to implement the requirements but it's also not a viable position to say we don't have enough time to implement them because it's not how the government sees it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I swear we did not organize these slides in advance. This is just free. Oh, no. Did I do it too? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this is exactly where I wanted to go next, right? It's this, how does, how does industry see it? How has industry adopted it? And at the end of the day, the government is saying, hey, you guys are, you're maintaining the security of our nation, right? Our data needs to be secured with adequate protections because there is a threat that is advancing. Um, this is actually the determination to issue an interim rule. This is from that 2015 rule, but this language is repeated 
Um, very similar what we saw on uh, the 889, uh, what we've seen in the bite dance. Um, I believe it's also in the prohibition on uh, materials from the Uyghur region of China. So this idea that um, DOD is, uh, you know, they're looking out for, for the interest of our nation and we're trying to balance what that means for industry. But at the end of the day, if they see a threat, they're going to issue it. And, you know, we have to figure out how to become compliant yeah. as quickly as possible. Not yeah. a popular situation, right? And especially as you walked it through from DOD's perspective. And I think that's where we kind of saw in that room was, what do you mean you guys haven't right. been doing this already? Right? This is, we've been telling you since at least 2015 that this right. needs to happen. So, yeah, it's really, it's really a terrible trap, right? Because, you know, I would say that the, my idea about the class deviation, assuming that we get one, we should get one being not long enough is that if the DOD says we're not going to pay you for 171 that you've attested to implementing, they're probably not going to pay you in time to implement it either. And so as a result, you're just going to get the class deviation for the Delta. Yeah, it's funny. You have me, you have my, my brain running here because you have a, an image of wording from the interim rule. This brings up the, the, the debate around CMMC rulemaking as to what, what kind of rule are we going to get whenever they publish it? Will it be an interim rule or will it be a proposed rule? It seems like the ecosystem has reached the conclusion on its own that it's going to be a proposed rule. This is the language that you hear. My understanding is that OIRA during regulatory review gets to make that determination. So is it probably a proposed rule? Maybe. Uh, however, it is telling that the 2013 rule went through normal rulemaking. Things changed. And then the 2015 rule was an interim final rule. The 2020 rule was an interim final rule. We found out that the requirements weren't actually being implemented fully and that we need to go verify them, but that that rule would not be enough justification to be interim final like we would go from long rulemaking fast fast back to long rulemaking that that from a high level doesn't make much sense to me i know there's arguments for why it could be a proposed rule but it just it always it always gets me whenever the uh interim versus proposed rule thing uh comes up and you had it on the screen so forgive me no but i mean the this language and the reason why i thought it was so um powerful to, to kind of highlight this again is again this was from the 2015 rule yeah. but ever i mean you only have to open the news or bloomberg or you know wherever yeah. you get your your daily espresso shot of, of uh, <laughs> political situation none of these threats are doing anything but getting faster and, right. and more prolific so yeah. if if this is the reason why they decided to issue an interim rule in 2015 I, I don't see that this not this how this is not still an argument to be made today or next year or in 2025. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, and I know you mentioned it uh, before we were on, and you know this was a, uh, something that we were going to talk about uh, later on in a different part of the podcast. But uh, talking about the language from the government, where you said you've seen it in other places, the DHS CUI rule recently came out, and surprise, surprise, different agency, different agency um, appointees, different agency employees, different contractors, different data types, same rhetoric in their rule about pressing national security concerns, the importance of cybersecurity, the fact that it is just a terrible reality that minimum requirements don't scale very well for small organizations. And that's just the breaks apparently 
uh, in their view. So these are not things unique to what DOD has said. These are very common uh, uh, talking points in this is, and this is the other thing too. People uh, maybe don't understand the federal, what is published in the federal register is in black and white from a federal agency. I mean, it is the black and white rationale for why a clause or provision says what it says. It is much more informative, in my opinion, than just reading the clause or the provision by itself, because you don't actually have any of the background information for why it walks and talks the way that it does. Um, absolutely. And kind of, I know this isn't necessarily the topic we intended to talk sure. about, yeah. but, uh, you know, walking a little bit of that thread from what you said about uh, if the government isn't going to pay you to become 800-171 Rev 2 compliant in 2024, because you should have already been doing it. Um, you know, there was something in that DHS CUI rule that struck me because I went through all of, I think it was 38 pages of responses to industry comment, uh, most of which were, you know, we don't agree because. Um, and one of them talked about the cost of implementing and essentially DHS's response, and I'm paraphrasing, was along the lines of, we get it. It's important enough. We'll deal with the cost later kind yeah. of thing. Um, yeah. And I get that's kind of the sense. And as a contracting officer, that makes me very uh, nervous, right? Because um, when this kind of came about, I was an executing contracting officer. I only, by, by and large, we were told to do bilateral agreements to get 7012 in there because we just, we had to, the threat was there, we needed to be implemented. There was only one company that refused to do it bilaterally, meaning they said, nope, it's too much of a risk. I don't know what it's going to cost. I do not agree to bilaterally sign this modification to put it into our contract. So I had to unilaterally put it in. It's called a, U a UCO, a uni unilateral change order. My SES, she said it was only one of two she'd ever done in her entire career. Wow. Right? That's, so the, the that's, the, that's, that's Lauren Ayers turning around and saying, okay, well, now this is happening. Uh. <laughs> yeah, because they, you know, they, I think maybe for whatever reason, they either understood more or less about what was going on. But the fact that it was so important to national security that we were, they essentially directed me to unilaterally put that term in the contract and essentially like be damned the consequences, right? We'll figure out what it costs later. And I feel like that type of sentiment of, you know, the CUI rule, CMMC, what we're seeing happen from all the different cyber threats, that almost feels like, especially having read through those DHS CUI comments, you know, it's, we'll, we'll figure out, we'll work with industry to, to manage the cost, but we have to do this to protect national security. So Damn it's a- torpedoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were already talking about, I don't know. We're also watching very closely the NDAA amendments. Um, and there was one that talked about- uh, some other um, warheads. Anyway, so that, that's a, that's a sorry. <laughs> sorry, I know we're in, we're in NDAA season, so I didn't mean to bring up. Uh, <laughs> we know, are. Going on. Uh, there's like 52 of them. I need I need to read through all the different amendments. But um, this sense of the threat is advancing. The threat is not getting any um, any. You know, it's it's not going away. And as you just said, Jacob, you walk through in DOD's mind. We've already been talking about this for nearly a decade. What do you mean you're not ready? this yeah. right yeah and that's you know it's like i said i mean that is that is a valid argument right it is a true thing to say that you can point to the timeline and say here here and here and it 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 just feels hollow at the end though because even though it's correct it isn't actually it isn't actually very helpful right and so i mean the the thing that it really did a couple of years ago at least was when cmmc just sort of showed up out of nowhere 
it was uh, it was basically a timeline that shows, well, it didn't really show up out of nowhere. And so now that everybody knows it didn't show up out of nowhere, now what? You know what I mean? And that that is actually a harder question to wrestle with than saying, is this actually new or not? Now that we know that it's not, it wasn't new and it certainly isn't new now. Um, now what are we going to do? And like you said, when you read the DHS rule, when you read the old rules, when you hear comments and statements from DOD and other agency officials in events and podcasts and things like that, the rhetoric all sounds the same. It all sounds the same. And that's just, um, it's just one of those things where it's like, don't, don't expect, I, the, the way that I would look at it is, is if you are, business is about taking risks, right? And so if you're going to bet that they're going to change their mind or not, then feel free to take the bet. But just uh, take in uh, all of the information about what they're saying and then think about what, how likely are they to change their mind? What, what has happened in the threat landscape? What has happened in the implementation rates and findings of DIBCAC and other industry reports? for 171 in the dib that would lead you to believe that the agency officials who have been mandated by Congress to fix this problem would feel like they could reduce the standard, give you extensions, somehow make it less strenuous than it is now. And then when I, when I think about it that way, uh, it seems inevitable to me that they will continue on this path. What's up, Jason? Nothing. I'm just absolutely soaking in everything that's being said here. I, I, I think I'm more fascinated by the fact that Lauren said that in the DHS uh, CUI rule um, that there was an instance of something that a senior person that she used to work for only came across for the second time in their career. And they're, they're talking about making it a regular thing for their entire contractor base. Um, I, that, that's a little scary to me too. Like I don't fully understand it like Lauren does, but I can understand enough to say that if it's a, a rare occurrence and now all of a sudden we want to make it an everyday occurrence, I don't think that that bodes well. Um, the good thing is for DHS is that their contractor base, according to them, isn't as large as the DODs. So maybe it'll be easier to parse through that. But like still, that this is just fascinating. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and just to clarify, because I probably did speak too fast. And, and as you said, uh, it's kind of back of, back of my mind. So the one, what my senior executive had only done twice in her life was to unilaterally force, essentially force a term onto a contractor. Okay. Um, so she'd only done that twice in her life. I've only done it once. So the, the DHS CUI rule, the, the outshoot of that was, yeah, we know it's going to be expensive for industry uh, and we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes. So yeah, those two are connected in that. That's why the contractor wouldn't agree to do it bilaterally. And we had to, you know, unilaterally put it in there. And now DHS is, you know, someone similarly saying, we understand it's going to cost a lot of money, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, kind of thing. So yeah it is. Um, it, that definitely perked my interest. Well, Lauren, I mean, at this point, um, you know, we, we always cover a tremendous amount of information every time you come through and it's always extremely valuable. So thank you. Uh, putting on your, your wizard hat and looking into your crystal ball and at risk of, recording a prediction on the internet that we will be able to replay in a future episode. Um, looking 12 months ahead of time, looking to Q1 of next year, Q1 of 2025, do you feel like it's more than likely that there will be a class deviation? Do you feel like it will be longer or shorter than what common uh, sentiment seems to think that it will be? You know, what, what do you think is going to happen here? So I don't gamble for a reason because I'm normally <laughs> not right. Um, but I, I, think past, <laughs> I think past precedent on this situation, considering the fact that they did a class deviation in 2015 under, I would say, similar situation, 
odds are, yes, there will be a class deviation. I just don't know for how long, for all the reasons that we just talked about, if DOD is looking at it and you're already going to get, you know, potentially 60 days, right? Um, well, that's with the CMMC rule, but how long is it going to be? That's, I think that's where we need to put the over-under, right? I, I don't think it's going to be a year. I mean, they did nine months when it was kind of brand new, but then that was overtaken by events by the, you know, the interim rules. So, which did give a year. Well, in the here's a, here's she a, she says she doesn't gamble and then comes out and throws out over-unders. Like, yeah. <laughs> I still don't really understand what it means, but I know it's a term. So, you know. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, here's here's a here's a fun would you rather that I thought up of just off the top of my head. So, assuming that there's a let's say the class deviation is 18 months long, and as a result, you don't have to have 171 Rev 3 implemented until that class deviation is expired, and CMMC gets up and running before that class deviation is done. So you would be getting assessed against 171 Rev 2. Would you rather? Get a class deviation and allow you to get assessed against 171 Rev 2 requiring the use of FIPS validated encryption? Or would you rather have to deal with a 30% larger standard and get assessed against that, but not have to deal with FIPS? Let us know in the comments below. Uh, there's probably no good answer here. But I, well, the reason I thought of that was if we have a class deviation and then you have CMMC overlap that class deviation, then you potentially have the situation where you're going to have a company that had 171 Rev 2 at the time of their solicitation, and then they need to get their assessment. And then you have a different company that has 171 Rev 3 that needs to get assessed. Or you have one company with two different contracts. Normally, in my experience at very large prime contractors for like weapon systems, those individual programs are distinct entities. And so that entity is Northrop Grumman, but that entity is on contract for 853 Rev3 or Rev4 or Rev5. And in order to change it, they need a contract mod. Here, we don't have that contract mod. Here, you've got this rolling incorporated by reference thing. And so that could be a lot harder in an organization where you have one information system, two different sets of provisions and clauses that were issued during a class deviation, if that makes sense. It does. And one program might have been compliant with Rev 2, right? And then let's say it's a brand new start and they have to start at Rev 3. Then in order for them to be compliant by Rev 3, you really have to pull the whole system forward. You rip right? out so all your flexibility and crypto and you fail your Rev 2 assessment, even though you're compliant with Rev 3, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a thorny issue. Any, any, any side you take on it from the government side, they see the threat advancing. Um, they know that we need to control this data because it's it's being targeted, right? And from industry's perspective, there still is that lack of an understanding of the cost of implementation, the cost of maintenance, um, you know, the, the the assessments, just what it takes to actually do what what DoD is asking you to do. That to me is kind of the kernel. We need to figure out how to how to get that into decision makers' minds, such that they can be like, okay, maybe a six month deviation isn't long enough, right? I now understand enough that maybe it is twelve because you have, yeah. you know, you're going to at least be at this. So I think it, it's really just that connecting the two parties to better understand what the impact is. And that's where industry associations like mine, we try to yeah. do that. Right? Yeah. You know, PSC does a great job. We love all the stuff that you guys put out and everything that you guys advocate for, which will link to everything like usual. Make sure you follow Lauren 
on LinkedIn. Lauren, there's always something crazy going on where we need your expertise to learn from your knowledge and experience. So we're thankful for how uh, gracious you are with your time. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be something crazy coming up soon where we're going to need to figure out what's going on and you'll be the only one that can get us out of it. So thanks so well, much. Like I said, I'm, I'm a fan of the show. I'm always happy to help wherever I can. So uh, you know my number and reach out anytime. There you go. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks.